This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter, and this is ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, where a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You can find more of our work at ObsessiveViewer.com and more podcasts presented by Obsessive Viewer at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support what we do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer, where we have four different reward tiers or four different... um, Patreon tiers. Um, at the $1 per month level, you get access to well over 150 exclusive B-roll episodes that we do every now and then before recording. And then at the $2 level, you get that plus movie, or I'm sorry, TV and book review reaction episodes. Currently on the $2 level, I'm doing a breakdown of Stephen King's short fiction, uh, starting with Night Shift. All of January, every Sunday is another part of my Night Shift coverage. And then at the $5 a month level, you get all of that plus movie reviews and commentary tracks. I did commentary tracks for Scream, uh, Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween uh, H2O, Halloween uh, 2018, Halloween Kills, a bunch of commentary tracks. There are 25 commentary tracks on there, plus immediate reviews of Dune, and I just did an immediate review of the 2022 Scream release. And finally, at the $10 a month level, you get everything that I just said, plus early access to podcast episodes and previously unreleased content. For instance, the year in review episode, the $10 patrons got a bonus 12 minutes of uh, really just chatter on that. So uh, so check that out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Everything goes to paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. So I'm your host, the aforementioned Matt Hurt. And with me today is special guest, returning champion, uh, returning guest to the podcast, Sam Watermeyer from the Midwest Film Journal and the Indiana Film Journalist Association. Sam, welcome back. And how's it going? Oh, thanks for having me. I am doing quite well. Nice. Very good to hear. Yeah, you just did a very, uh, uh, we were talking and we've talked like previously, but you um, uh, had the day off yesterday and did a double feature at the Living Room Theaters. That's exciting. Yes, it was my first time there. I highly recommend it. It's a uh, a really fancy, um, comfortable theater. I saw uh, Spider-Man, No Way Home. And, uh, then I saw, uh, the new scream and I love yes. both of them. Nice. So it, uh, it, it was a nice day for, uh, sort of legacy sequels. Yeah. Oh yeah. And movies that are, it's funny, <laughs> like movies that are kind of uh, sort of tailor-made for, um, fan service, not as, not saying that as a, uh, detractor or criticism or anything because they do fan service incredibly well um and then we're also today we're talking about the matrix resurrections which is also kind of a similar kind of thing um so kind of interesting oh totally yeah uh like uh like scream the matrix resurrections is uh basically a, a requel mm-hmm. where it uh returns to the source um <laughs> returns to the original more mm-hmm. than uh more than its sequels absolutely absolutely and i'm so glad to have you on to talk about the matrix resurrections because a 
you're a huge fan of the Matrix movies, and I'm just excited to get your input on that. And B, we're uh, like, we were, we intended to record this at the end of last year, but then, uh, you know, things just got in the way and everything. So I'm glad that we were able to reschedule it and get it, get it taken care of. So I appreciate your patience on that, by the way. So, oh, of course. Yeah, no yeah, worries. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, as I said, we're going to be uh, reviewing the Matrix Resurrections. And then later in this episode, I'm going to be breaking down the podcast stats and the uh, Patreon stats for the 2021, as mentioned in the year in review episode. And then I'm also going to break down my honorable mentions for 2021. But that's all to come later. Today, though, or right now, I should say, we're going to be talking about the Matrix Resurrections. And uh, first of all, before we get into the actual talk about Matrix Resurrections, where can we find you online, Sam? And what what uh, like what kind of stuff do you do online? <laughs> uh, well, um, for my uh, film writing, you can find me at MidwestFilmJournal.com. Um, in fact, today I'll have a review of Scream up. Nice, um, the new one, not the mm-hmm. original. Um, they they share the same name. Yep, <laughs> um, but. Uh, yeah, you can mainly find me there. Um, also on Facebook, if you would like mm-hmm. to friend me and <laughs> discuss movies. Um, uh, I'm on oh Letterboxd at yep. um, Sam Movie Man. Nice. Um, and uh, Instagram, I guess, if you want to go on there. <laughs> I, I'm, nice. I'm not on Twitter because you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta set a line in the sand somewhere. Yeah. Oh yeah. And Twitter is social a, media a hellscape anyway. So yeah, I don't blame you um, <laughs> uh, at all. Like I intentionally on Twitter muted. I muted the words "scream" and every other kind of thing just because I didn't want to get spoiled or anything. Um, and then funny story. I'm I'm gonna talk about because we're gonna do an episode on scream next week with Mike and uh, not to spoil anything there, but it was funny because I went to the theater Thursday night, packed house and everything, super excited. And then I (laughs) like I had earbuds in while in my seat because I was just there alone. And I was like intentionally like I'm not going to hear any like I don't even want to hear any of the conversations going on around me because I don't want anything, anything to be even slightly spoiled. And then (laughs) before I think it was before before the trailers, I took my earbuds out and then I overheard someone say something and I was like, oh, okay, now I can expect this in the movie. <laughs> um, and it was a minor thing, but it was just like, God damn it. Um, <laughs> they said, uh, they said, Sydney is dead the whole time. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of that, you did have, uh, just want to kind of highlight this. Um, you were previously on the show in uh when was that september october for malignant um yes yeah and i don't remember if this was before or after you wrote this but you had a very nice interview on midwest film journal uh with the actress who played the kitchen ghost in the sixth sense um so i just wanted to kind of highlight that and let people know to check the show notes to find that because that was a really cool uh really cool piece oh thank you i really appreciate that um uh, yeah, I was just on a whim. I decided to contact her because she uh, haunted my dreams throughout my entire childhood. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I wanted answers. I wanted nice. an apology. <laughs> um, no, she was a she was a lovely woman. We talked about um, 
why that scene is so effective and, and the impact that it had on me personally. And she kind of took me behind the scenes and we ended up nice. talking about spirituality as well. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, sort of, um, somewhat ghostly encounters that we've had and, uh, yeah, it turned out to be a, a cool thing. So nice. I appreciate you, uh, mentioning that. Yeah, of course. And like I said, I'll put a link in the show notes, um, of this episode cause it's very much a very interesting, um, interview and a really interesting piece. Um, especially since that's like, I love those kinds of, those kinds of like kind of deep dives into, smaller pieces of like a movie or a piece of art like these little like kind of underseen or under talked about things because you know you talk about the sixth sense and you talk about like oh they're dead the whole he's dead the whole time and all that and like i kind of feel like it kind of gets a little bit lost in the shuffle that it is a very effective like horror movie as well um and there's oh, some yeah. really good insight into that um i'd actually like to give a little shout out to you as well oh. Uh, you you recently did a, a similar kind of piece talking about a scene from Scream 2. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, and I'm sure, you know, I mean, obviously it's on your site, but I would encourage mm. um, people to read that because it's a really fascinating breakdown of that scene. And, you know, you talk about your childhood appreciation of mm. Scream, which is very uh, endearing. And uh, I really enjoyed that as well. Oh, thank you so much. I was totally fishing for that. So thank you. Um, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I appreciate that. That's very kind. Nice. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And you can find that also on Midwest Film Journal. They were gracious enough to publish that for me. So uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But uh, but yeah, Sam, we've got business to attend to. Um, the Matrix Resurrections. Um, so we are um, a week away from it leaving HBO Max until it comes back, but uh, people still have a, have a chance to see it. Um, I, so before we get into like actually talking about the Matrix Resurrections, I think it would be prudent to kind of discuss our relative histories with the Matrix trilogy. And I know that you are a big fan of the Matrix, so uh, why don't you give us a rundown of your history with the Matrix uh, trilogy and your anticipation for Resurrections? Okay. Um, well, the Matrix... Uh, the original, um, pretty much since I saw it when it came out as a, when, when it came out, um, has been my, uh, go-to answer for what is your favorite movie oh, wow. of all nice. time. Um, <clears throat> I just, uh, I hadn't really seen anything, um, up until that point that was such a perfect fusion of popcorn entertainment mm -hmm. and philosophy. Um, uh, you know, I, the whole movie kind of creates this moment to moment sense of discovery. It's just, you're repeatedly dropping your jaw on the floor. Um, and, uh, that, uh, you know, it, it's basically one of the movies that, made me fall in love with movies uh, nice. just because of that sense of discovery and because of the, the films, you know, sense of mystery and, and all of its revelations. Um, and of course, uh, when the sequels came out, um, I should say uh, when the matrix came out, I was eight years old. Mm -hmm. um, 
So uh, when the sequels came out, when I was in like junior high, um, I was freaking out. Because the the idea of a sequel to my all-time favorite movie was just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, And I loved the sequels. Um, You know, I think what's uh, great about Reloaded is that I would say the action scenes rival the ones in the original. Yeah. Um, uh, They're just, you know... And uh, that's what, just as an action movie, I really appreciate the matrix because Mm -hmm. it has such vivid action scenes. Um, and, uh, they're, they're very elegant, um, you know, almost choreographed like, uh, ballet dances. Um, and I, I think so many action movies now are just these chaotic messes masquerading as action mm-hmm. um but you know uh the the action scenes in the matrix are so so vivid and and clean and imaginative uh and memorable and you know you can actually tell what the fuck is going on in them um <laughs> yeah uh unlike a lot of uh action scenes in movies today mm-hmm. um Okay, sorry, I'm rambling. Oh no, trying you're to get good. Back on point. You're good. Did you um, have you you haven't seen the 355, have you? <laughs> no. Okay. I probably never will. Honestly. Yeah, it's it's god awful. <laughs> but like your point about the Matrix, like choreography being very coherent and like almost natural, is like like yeah the the fight sequences, the action sequences in the 355 is a great example of just shitty like like uh just quick edited actions like it makes no sense at all it's so horrid um so yeah so anyway (laughs) i just wanted to just get a jab in at the 355 (laughs) yeah i mean i think that just goes to show how action movies have paled in comparison to Mm -hmm. the matrix you know since it came out but i was also going to say i think why it why it appealed to me as a kid is um you know this idea that uh, the world isn't what you think it is mm-hmm. and that there's more out there. I mean, what's more appealing, uh, to a kid than that? I mean, oh, just yeah. that sense of, you know, I think that's, that's just a particularly appealing idea to a kid. Yeah. And I think now, <clears throat> uh, the idea that, uh, you know, we're, we're slaves to technology and we're living in this kind of simulated society has unfortunately come true um, through platforms like Facebook and, Mm. um, and I'm not going to completely knock Facebook. I mean, I'm addicted to it like everyone else is, but I think it's this idea that we basically live online. We, Mm -hmm. We live in cyberspace, um, like the characters in, the matrix so i mean the the movie's prophecy basically came true mm-hmm. um uh so i would say those were the main things that appealed to me um uh with oh so i've already covered reloaded with mm-hmm. revolutions um the uh the sequence in the machine city uh, near the end really appeals to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a part where Neo is, is kind of walking through, um, 
uh, part of the city and there are these little mechanical creepy crawlers behind him yeah. and it, it's like i don't know it's like it's like philip k dick by way of uh grimm's fairy tale forest wow um, yeah <laughs> I, I, I thought uh that you know the machine city you see a, a lot more of in revolutions than mm-hmm. the previous two. Um, and I think uh, that movie works more on an emotional level than a philosophical one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the, the love story between Neo and Trinity is, is probably strongest in revolutions. And, yeah. and I would say that leads me to how I feel about resurrections, which is that I think, you know, uh, what the strength of the film really lies in its, its emotional stakes and, um, and the, the relationship between those two characters in particular. Um, so I kind of liked it for similar reasons as, uh, as revolutions. So, yeah, I think that kind of answers what you, (laughs) what you put out there in a really long winded way. No, no, that was great. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I also saw the first Matrix when it came out and like I didn't see it in the theater or anything, but I just remember I have this memory of uh, like my family was like house sitting for family friends who had like this very big, like crazy entertainment center. And so like we went, I think we went to Blockbuster and we rented the Matrix specifically because it was like an action movie and that we wanted to get the full, the full um experience and, like, I remember, because I was a kid, I was, what, like, 12, maybe? Um, 13? And, like, I was, like, as a 12 or 13-year-old, I was nervous that I wasn't going to understand it or anything, or that I'd look stupid because I didn't understand the concepts or anything. Um, but the way that the, the Wachowskis just kind of bring us into that world and establish the the rules of it and and what it entails like i came away from it thinking like this was a really awesome movie this was really cool and it wasn't until revisiting it some years later where i could kind of really grasp the kind of the philosophy of it the idea of like fate and free will and all that stuff like that's that's stuff that's just so rich in everything and then when reloaded came out it was something that i feel like you're I agree completely the action set pieces are insane in that like that freeway chase is incredible and also like when revisiting it last year for resurrections I was just so kind of enamored with how reloaded just takes those phil- philosophical concepts and just throws so much more into it and reload it like they explore a lot of different ideas like that scene with the oracle uh, before the burly brawl, it's like they're like. Granted, a lot of the dialogue is just like pointed and very much like like they're talking exactly like they're saying exactly what they mean, but it still is an interesting like exploration of these different philosophical concepts and everything. And then with the Merovingian and the whole uh, cause and effect thing, like just like those kinds of concepts are really interesting. And by the time I got around to re- uh, revolutions. I kind of felt like that was a little bit I, – I wish that there was – it had carried on more of that, but I don't know. And when I revisited Revolutions, I thought it was fine. Um, and to your point, I really liked the Trinity and Neo. Um, 
ending really in that in that movie so that made me kind of curious about resurrections because i didn't know how the movie was going to justify itself in terms of just existing since the end of revolutions is such a such an unambiguous yet also slightly ambiguous end to the franchise and i was wondering how it was going to reconcile that for this new iteration or this new installment. So uh, my anticipation for Resurrections was pretty high and I wrote a review on the website and everything, but we will talk about the movie now. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so uh, we're going to go into our non-spoiler review for The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, Check the show notes for when we go to spoilers and we'll we'll have like a clip from the trailer before spoilers and everything. But right now we're going to do non-spoilers and to get us kicked off, I'm going to read a plot summary courtesy of imdb um yeah okay so the plot summary is return to a world of two realities one everyday life the other what lies behind it to find out if his reality is a construct to truly know himself mr anderson will have to choose to follow the white rabbit once more so sam i forgot to ask did you have any comments about my history with the matrix (laughs) i just kind of i mean i I think we're we're you know Mostly yeah. in agreement. Um, I was going to say that's a great uh, uh, non-spoiler synopsis. Oh, that's nice. a good way of, uh, uh, yeah, because I've been a little oh, bad yeah. about spoiling this movie when I've talked oh, really? about it. But <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try to be careful here coming mm-hmm. up in a minute. Nice. Nice. Um, so uh, it should also be noted, this came out on in theaters and on hbo max on december 22nd and i can't remember did you see did you go to the theater for it or did you oh or did you see it in on hbo max i think i know the answer go ahead um i went to the theater and Ah. there's uh kind of a funny story behind this Mm -hmm. um uh our mutual friend evan Mm. made a bet oh that's right and uh, fellow IFGA members Nick Rogers and Joe Shearer a few <laughs> years ago, I think it was, gosh, 2017. Wow. He he bet that there would be a, a Matrix sequel by, I think, 2019 because it was wow. the 20th anniversary of the original, mm-hmm. which is a good guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, of course, um, COVID messed that up. So, mm-hmm. uh, um. Oh, so the bet was if he was wrong about the date, he would buy tickets uh, for all of us. Nice. Um, and uh, we saw it in uh, IMAX at AMC Castleton. Nice. Um, I brought a, uh, <laughs> I have like a little mini Neo Funko Pop. Nice. That I, I sat on the armrest next to me. <laughs> Um, but, uh, it was great seeing that on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually watched it again on HBO and it just, mm-hmm. it felt weird. Yeah. Um, not that you can enjoy it on TV, but, um, it, uh, I mean, visually it's pretty striking. So mm-hmm. I appreciated the, the theater experience and, uh, you know, when, when the, uh, green, um uh Warner Brothers logo came yeah. up and the the code mm-hmm. started cascading down the screen i i was like a like a little kid again i was just <laughs> giddy with excitement that's awesome that's awesome um yeah i'm really glad you were able to see it in the theater also um 
So what did you think of the Matrix Resurrections? Like, what was your excitement? Well, I'm sure I know your excitement level, but like, what what were your thoughts as you were experiencing it in the theater? Um, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. Mm-hmm. It opens with, um, I'll just say it opens with basically a recreation of a scene from the original. Yeah. Um, so right from the get-go, you know, I was like, all right, this is really feeding my nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in, I am, I'm jacked into the matrix. <laughs> nice. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I just, as the story unfolded, I was really, um, surprised by a few, th- uh, kind of meta elements mm-hmm. um, that I wasn't expecting, um, I think it, it actually makes some pretty bold moves in its first act, um, story wise and mm-hmm. on a meta level. Um, I, uh, you know, I remember, uh, feeling, Oh, my oh. cat is <laughs> nice. interrupting us. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which uh, one's that? There's a, uh, this is parabola. Nice. Um, <laughs> he's named after a tool song. No. But yeah, nice. a, a cat just showed up, so there's mm. a glitch in the matrix. Nice. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I will admit that as the action scenes unfolded, I was a little mm. disappointed. Okay. They're 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 not as cohesive mm-hmm. um, as the action scenes in the original. Um, I, I still think they're exciting on some level, but I wasn't as blown away as I was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when I saw the original in the theater. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and by the end, I, I was very moved. It, um, uh, I don't think this spoils anything either, but you know, Neo and Trinity, um, uh, you know, come together in, in a really beautiful way. Um, and, uh, the, the ending of the film, um, just, uh, feels like a, a great send off for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was great to see them again. Um, you know, especially on, on a rooftop <laughs> that kind of mirrors the one from the original. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. But, I, uh, I didn't put that together. I'm an idiot. <laughs> oh no, no, no. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, I really liked it. It, um, nice. I, I didn't, you know, I've since I was pretty high on it when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just, you know, I was getting kind of mad at, um, Evan and Nick for their criticisms. <laughs> I was like, I thought that was fucking awesome. And nice. you guys are wrong. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I've come to understand other people's criticisms and mm-hmm. I've, I've kind of, I've, I've cooled on the movie a little bit. It's still probably like a four out of five for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, I was just, I, it made me very happy and, nice. um, it, it also ends with the perfect song. I won't give it away. Oh yeah. Um, but it just, it felt like a, a great, uh, love letter to, to fans, especially of the mm-hmm. original movie. Um, so, uh, I had a very satisfying, uh, theater experience. Um, the, to me, uh, it makes bold moves that don't, um, 
always land smoothly, but I would rather see something that tries to be different than, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a cookie cutter sequel. Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I think that kind of sums up how I feel non-spoiler wise. Nice. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting. It It is something that is very much a love letter to fans of the original in particular. And that, I, I think what I kind of honed in on, I, I wasn't as, as hot on the movie as you were. Um, but I will say that I respected the way that uh, Lana Wachowski was basically giving a new ending to two just cherished characters and like giving them a proper kind of end, which I feel like going into it is kind of strange because I, as tragic as the ending was of revolutions, I feel like that was one of the strongest parts of that movie was the way that they like one of the most emotionally pivotal scenes is the scene after they break through and see the sky. (laughs) Um, like I thought that was incredible. Um, so to kind of not, not retcon that necessarily, but to, to go back and do something else with the characters felt a little bit risky to me. And what I was kind of trying to rationalize as the movie was beginning was how is this movie going to justify its own existence? (laughs) How is it going to justify how it, like how it, is in existence and everything. And the thing that I kept thinking about was I was looking at it on a macro level of like, how, like, is this going to be another, like saving all of humanity kind of story and the fight against the machines and everything. And what I do appreciate about the movie is that it's very much a micro thing. It is very much focused on Neo and Trinity. You get updates on what the world, both the world and the matrix are like now a certain number of years later, but it is more at its heart. It's about Neo and Trinity and their connection. And I just found a a little bit like that was the way that I kind of, that that's was the biggest strength of the movie for me that I, that I, I liked quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really interesting point that, you know, it really boils down to Neo and Trinity and you mm-hmm. said it, you described it as kind of micro. Um, I think that's, what's cool about it is that um, the, uh, the stakes of the movie are, um, I don't want to say small, mm-hmm. but, uh, there's kind of an intimacy to them. Like yeah. it, it's really about getting these two people together mm-hmm. uh, rather than, you know, saving the world, yeah. so to speak. Um, so I think it's, it's cool that it, it, it boils down to something so small and simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I read an article uh, uh, in which Lana Wachowski said that, uh, bringing these two characters back, uh, was, uh, therapeutic for her after losing her parents. Oh, wow. Um, she kind of saw Neo and Trinity as, as her mother and father. Um, and, um, so I think you can tell that it's, uh, you know, this kind of in uh, Lana went into the sequel for, you know, intimate personal reasons that kind of reflect the, the intimacy of the, the stakes of the movie. 
That's really interesting. I did. I wasn't aware of that. That's that's really interesting because there's something in the movie when it goes through its whole meta thing, which it was one of the parts that I kind of had a bigger problem with, which we can talk about more in spoilers. But when it went through that, like it actually um, makes a reference to like Warner Brothers themselves and how the Warner Brothers wanted to do something, um, something more, a fourth Matrix iterate, like a fourth installment of the Matrix in the movie. And like, I wonder how much of that is actually true. Like, do you know, like the behind the scenes of this? Was it something that, was it something that Lana Wachowski like had, like had like this idea or was it something that was it like in the movie where it's like, well, uh, they're going to do it anyway. I, I better do it myself or something like, do you know, do you have any insight into the production for that? Um, I actually don't. I, w- okay. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can imagine that was, that reflected a fear of hers anyway. Oh yeah. Um, that, you know, Warner brothers was going to make a sequel, you know, with or without her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'll talk more about this in the spoilers section, but um, I think calling out Warner brothers specifically was pretty bold. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm surprised that's even in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I just, that was, that was one of the, the bold meta moves that uh, surprised me. Yeah. And also in regards to kind of the action set pieces and everything, there's some fun stuff in it for sure. I think the most that I got out of it was when it was recreating iconography from the original. But do you think that's due? Because I know that the I don't have the names offhand, but I know that the it was a different cinematographer, right? Um, uh, yes, it yeah. was. Okay. Do you like how? I don't know. Did did you feel like it lessened the movie or um, was it not as, as, you know, bad for you, I guess, to not put too fine a point on it? Um, I I like that this one looks quite a bit different from Mm -hmm. the original. Um, Even the, uh, you know, the nameless city that it takes place in um, is very strange. It's, it it actually looks rather fake. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can really tell that it's computer generated, but I think that's fitting because yeah. the Matrix is a computer simulation. Um, uh, and and it seems like the city is much brighter, mm-hmm. um, and even the the look of the film is much brighter and mm-hmm. and uh, you know more more colorful than the original, which is kind of, um, kind of green and gray and yeah. like a little desaturated. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I kind of liked the, the new look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it kind of seems a little bit fitting given like the closing, closing moments of revolutions. I can't remember exactly, but I feel like that was also that kind of vibrance and lack of, lack of like, green uh and everything like in terms of the color palette and that so it does track pretty well and i do agree like it looked it looked really cool um and and really really solid yeah um so uh did you did you publish like a top 10 list or anything for 2021 anywhere uh no i just i i kind of crapped out near the end of the year i just um, I've thought about just posting a list on Facebook, mm-hmm. but yeah. um, 
but I don't, I'm sorry. Why, why do you ask? Oh, I was going to ask if this would have been on your list anywhere. Uh, it actually wouldn't surprisingly enough. Okay. Um, um, yeah, this is kind of a, uh, four out of five for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, yeah, I, cause I was surprised. I thought this would probably be my favorite movie of 2021. Right. Um, I mean, it made me very happy and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I enjoyed it, but, um, it's nowhere near the, you know, what, what the original, uh, sure. is to me. Yeah. Um, and kind of final thought before we go into spoilers, um, do you, would you want to see anything more in the matrix world or do you think that this would be a good, just end point for the entire franchise? Do you have any like thoughts about the possibility of them doing more? Um, yeah. Um, I, I appreciate this one as a, as a one and done. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't really, I, I think it's, you know, a good one off. I, yeah. I don't really feel the a desperate need for more. Um, I know this one didn't do very well at the box office. Right. So I can't imagine. I'd love to see like a matrix TV series or something. Oh yeah. Um, hmm. Or, you know, maybe like a, an animatrix series. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't really feel the need for, for more movies. How about you? Nice. Um, I'm kind of the same way. I, I thought it was a good kind of one off and a good, um, a good love letter to two of the beloved characters and a good send off for them as well to kind of have their, have their moment and have it be more like, that's kind of the thing that I kind of keep coming back to is that for a movie that is for a franchise, it's all about, you know, humans versus machines and, and free will and like knowing, like, like, like freeing your mind and everything and all of these philosophical kind of principles and everything. I really kind of appreciate that the Matrix Resurrections kind of kind of just casts a lot of that aside and just becomes about these two human beings and their connection and everything. It's like kind of a wildly different kind of movie than what we've had before. And it's kind of refreshing because it's it's there's less balls in the air to juggle and it's more about the humanity of it, which I, I appreciate. Um, but I don't really need to see more of it or anything. I think that the trilogy is is fine enough on its own, and this is a good kind of uh, epilogue to the trilogy. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to go into spoilers for The Matrix Resurrections? Yes, I do. Absolutely. All right. Sweet. Well, we are going to spoil The Matrix Resurrections. I'm going to play a clip from the trailer when we come back. Spoilers on. Uh, if you want to skip that, check the show notes for timestamps where I'm going to be talking like after this about uh, all of the stats and honorable mentions and stuff I had for 2021. So uh, without further ado, here's a clip from the trailer and then spoilers for The Matrix Resurrections. If you want the truth, Neo, you're going to have to fool on me. that matters to you is still here. I know it's why you're still fighting and why you will never give up. You don't know me. No? All right. 
right, and spoilers on for The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, Sam, how did you feel in spoilers about The Matrix Resurrections? Do you, do you kind of want to start with the meta stuff in the first act and then kind of branch off from there or however you want to do it? Yeah, sure. Um, nice. I'll start with the meta stuff. So um, the story follows Thomas Anderson, um, uh, who you know, is somehow buried back within the matrix, um, as a, now he's stepped up from being kind of a corporate drone. Mm -hmm. He's now a, uh, very successful, um, game designer. And we find that he has, uh, created a game based on his experiences, um, as Neo, um, uh, you know, it's based, the, the game is, um, basically the original film trilogy. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was cool. I wasn't expecting that. Me um, neither. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the idea that, <clears throat> um, what the matrix uh, I think the idea that the matrix turning into a video game, which he refers to as something trivial, mm -hmm. I think that reflects how, uh, what the matrix prophesized, um, ultimately became something trivial as well. Uh, the prophecy of the matrix came true through stuff like Facebook, um, yeah. and, you know, social media in general, um, you know, it's like we didn't heed the warning of the original Matrix. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're all slaves to technology. We're glued to our phones. Um, we're, you know, constantly looking at screens. I mean, we're basically living inside of, you know, living online, mm -hmm. um, living in cyberspace, living in a computer program. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, again, like I'm sure people will hear that and shake their heads and be like, mm -hmm. don't knock social media. Like, <laughs> uh, rest assured, everyone, that I mm -hmm. use social media. Yeah. I realize the benefits of it, but it can also be horrible. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, that's why I appreciated the game aspect. And, um, um, but I'm sorry, I don't want to ramble on too much. Oh, no, what you're good. You think what, what did you think of the, the game stuff? You know, um, I, I wasn't expecting that either. And I thought that that was an interesting way to, to kind of have this metafictional aspect to the story while not being too meta in terms of like, it's, it's not like he made a trilogy of movies and cast someone who looked exactly like him and everything. Um, so using footage from the original um for like as video game footage was was interesting but i will say that i feel like the meta stuff got a little bit uh, overdone um toward the end of that section cuz it kind of seems like it is a little bit segmented like we have uh the section that's all about the meta stuff and then we have him rediscovering who he really is and everything and then the rescue of trinity is kind of the final act and that's kind of I, I like the structure of that. I just kind of felt like I, I wish that the movie had explored 
more of that like what you like what you said like we are we are in the matrix like the, we have created the matrix for ourselves just about with social media and how our online personas and our online life is ru- ruling our real world life i kind of wish that the movie would have explored those concepts a little bit deeper but i also do recon- or recognize that the movie isn't necessarily about that per se. It's more about, like I said, it's about Trinity and Neo and sending off these two characters, giving them the ending that they that they deserve and that fans want for them. And I, I can appreciate that and respect that, but I think that they're <laughs> almost leaving leaving money on the table or leaving subtext on the table for uh by not really going full on into the real world like what we are doing in terms of even what we're doing right now we're <laughs> talking into microphones for an audience on the internet um it's just i kind of feel like there's there's more there's more um subtext in and commentary to be mined of our current state in the matrix movie than what we got in resurrections not that i didn't dislike it's not that I it's not that I disliked the Matrix Resurrections. I just feel like there was a little bit more that could have been mined for it. Yeah. Um, I actually agree with that. Um, you know, beyond one shot of Neo in an elevator surrounded yeah. by people looking at screens, you don't really get a lot of uh exploration of this idea that we're slaves to technology now. Yeah. And that is a little disappointing because mm-hmm. like, like you said, there is a lot to mine there. Yeah. Um, I mean, 20 some years after the matrix, what it prophesized has basically come true. So yeah. why not comment on that more? Mm. Um, I think another weakness of the game idea um, is this idea that, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Anderson's therapist tries to convince him that, the matrix didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, the game is based on his, you know, aspects from his real life. Like, you know, agent Smith is modeled after his boss. Right. Um, and, you know, creating the game was like a cathartic experience for him. And while I like the idea that, you know, the, the matrix game is, is based like agent Smith is based on his boss. Mm-hmm. Like you don't get the sense that his boss is really that much of a monster. Yeah. Um, like that he would create this, this, you know, extreme villainous character. Um, I mean, John, yeah. as his boss, Jonathan Groff is, you know, maybe a little pushy with yeah. the idea that kind of an asshole. Tom- <laughs> yeah. I mean, but like a very mild asshole, like, yeah, you know, the idea that he inspired Agent Smith is a little ridiculous. Sure. Um, because he's, you know, he's not that much of a jerk. Mm. Um, um, and I realized that the, uh, you know, that the boss actually is Agent Smith. But right. if you're going to suggest that the boss is simply um, kind of an inspiration for Smith, I thought he should have been, you know, uh, a little more menacing. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. I did like that. I can't remember exactly what he says, but I did like that scene where he that first scene with him where he's looking out into the city and like just he's 
he's saying like, wow, just imagine like the, what if this was uh, a construct or something like that. And it's just like, those are thoughts that, you know, we as fans of the matrix have had over the last couple decades, you know, thinking about like, Oh yeah. What if it is real? Or what if it is a, a matrix a simulation? But um, yeah. And, and I did, I think in terms of the set pieces and everything I did, I did really like the office uh, just, uh, gun battle scene. I thought that was incredible. Um, but yeah, I agree that, um, Jonathan Groff as, as, as good as he was in the movie, I thought he did a good job. Um, he, he didn't really seem quite, I kind of wish that agent Smith was more of a focal character in the movie, but it kind of switches over to the analyst, which is, uh, Neil Patrick Harris's character who is kind of like the latest incarnation of the, the architect. And like, I, I liked that, but I also kind of feel like there was a little bit missing with the, the Smith stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I I think, uh, you know, I say that, part of why I appreciated the movie is it makes some bold moves. Mm-hmm. I think it, I, I still think it makes bold moves, but it doesn't always follow through with them yeah. uh, very thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, you know, when I think about it now, I'm, I've cooled on the movie just, just a tad because it mm-hmm. doesn't quite follow through. Nice. Um, so, with the recreation of like the, the modals or whatever, the recreation of the opening scene of the matrix. Um, how did you feel about that in terms of like fan service and nostalgia? Um, one moment that I really loved was when, uh, the new character, uh, bugs Mm -hmm. is watching this scene from the original matrix unfold. It's, you know, the opening of the matrix with Trinity being pursued by agents. Um, and bug says something like, you know, I've seen this before Mm -hmm. and I know how it ends. She kicks their ass. (laughs) I thought that was great. Yeah. Um, I, I really loved that. Um, and that was kind of the first moment, uh, that I thought like, okay, this is great. I'm going to fucking love this movie. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, uh, I, I enjoyed it opening with, uh, a scene from the original. I mm-hmm. can understand why people would kind of roll their eyes and think like, Oh, we're just doing the same thing over again. Right. Um, but, um, I don't, I don't know. I, I liked it. What, what about you? Nice. I thought it was very, I, I really liked the way it was visualized. Like it was really cool. They did. It was really interesting seeing iconography from the first matrix kind of mixed with some of the, uh, well, at least the, the doorway kind of things in the sequels. Um, I thought that was kind of just a, a little interesting because like reloaded and revolutions, they have such a, such a more, Dis, not more distinctive, but they have a distinctive visual style than the original Matrix. The original Matrix has a very specific look to it, and there's barely anything in the real world or anything, whereas Reloaded is almost entirely in the Matrix just about, and then Revolutions is almost entirely in the real world. Um, but they also have the doorway things, and to see that used in uh, Re- Resurrections was kind of interesting. I did 
think that uh, that Yahya Abdul Mateen II was a little bit underserved in it because he plays this this iteration's Morpheus. Um, and I was kind of a little confused by that because he he's like an agent in the program or in the modal that Neo created. Yeah, so Neo created him as Morpheus as an agent, I guess, and then they pull him out and then he is this machine construct in the real world or something. I don't know. That was all kind of a little bit confusing and, and weird, but I felt like he didn't have as much to do as I would have liked him to have to do. Yeah, I was kind of confused by that as well because mm-hmm. it seems like he's an agent one minute and then mm-hmm. suddenly he's Morpheus looking for Neo. Like, yeah. I don't uh, – and I, I'm sure that is explained in some way that I simply forgot. Mm-hmm. But it, it seemed like kind of a jarring uh, change of character. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I think – if I remember correctly, I think it was something like – he was maybe programmed by Neo to have doubts about the real world. No, maybe not, because Bugs wasn't programmed or anything. They were just in the modal. I don't know, but Bugs has that conversation with him. Maybe that's why, because she was not a part of the modal or anything, so she put the kind of thing in his ear about, you know, hey, this is, you know, this is all real and everything, um, and then that's, I don't know. It was weird. I just felt like he deserves a little bit more, but, but yeah, so the, so the meta stuff was kind of a mixed bag for me. I, I appreciated what it was doing. I just kind of wish it would have done some things a little bit better and, and harder. Um, how'd you feel about kind of the rest of the movie? Um, uh, Neo's kind of escape from the matrix and his, the rescue mission for, for Trinity. Um, Excuse me. Um, I uh, so the second act largely takes place in the real world in mm-hmm. um, this uh, city of of Io, not yeah. Zion. Yeah. Um. Uh. And uh, I honestly, kind of tuned out during mm. that chapter. Um, interesting. We we see there are a few interesting things in it. We see that. Uh, some of the machines are, uh, you know, coexisting peacefully with mm-hmm. humans and actually serving them. Yeah. And, you know, that's always been the irony uh, throughout the franchise that, you know, they're raging against the machine, but mm-hmm. also depending on machines. Yeah. Um, but, and there's this uh, uh, scene where we see that they are farming um, food from the matrix yeah and you know like that's kind of interesting mm-hmm. but I, I i could i could have i could take or leave that yeah um uh, i just i don't know uh that chapter um didn't do much for me mm-hmm. i think uh the oh the escape from the matrix i thought was fucking great yeah um i hope we can swear on the show because oh, i've yeah. dropped like three f-bombs <laughs> you're good yeah Okay. Um, uh, so, you know, Neo is taken into, um, a room that's basically a recreation of, uh, the room where he meets, uh, Morpheus in the original Mm -hmm. film. 
and behind him is a screen projecting footage from the actual uh uh you know original matrix right uh so uh, th- you know that was cool just visually and kind of on a nostalgic level mm-hmm. um but i think that scene is actually kind of terrifying because he's about to get uh inserted into the real world but his uh therapist the analyst character um is kind of pulling him back and saying, yeah. you know, like this, this isn't real. Um, so just that kind of like existential conflict that he's had memories of the matrix, but um, you know, they might not be real and his therapist is telling him they're not real. Yeah. As these people are trying to take him back to what he's remembering. Like, you know, that's, uh, I thought that was quite a, a nightmarish kind of scenario. And mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah. Um, and in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, rescue of Trinity, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the strongest chapter of the movie for me. Um, uh, you know, you it ends with Neo and Trinity um, on a rooftop, and uh, they they jump off, and um, they kind of hang in midair for a while, and you realize that you know Neo isn't the one flying; it's actually Trinity. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a great message of uh, female empowerment from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lana Wachowski, you could tell that that was, you know, really a personal statement from her. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And, you know, just seeing them flying together at the end, uh, which mirrors the end of the original movie with flying off. uh, That was just like chef's chef's kiss perfection for me. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, that was really... That was really um, kind of a beautiful send off for those characters. And I really took the uh, inversion of Trinity and Neo, like Trinity be the one being the one to have basically all the power in the movie in terms of being able to fly and everything and also being the one to make the choice to like it, the whole movie is built around her choice to to exit the Matrix and and be with Neo or to to like be with Neo again. And I kind of felt like that. And this is something I really struggled with, with my review because I didn't know exactly how to articulate it, but I felt like that was a really interesting way for Lana Wachowski to kind of breathe into the movie, like a trans allegory, um, in, in a pretty unique way. And especially since like, like you said, um, uh, referencing the, the, uh, the song at the end of the movie is like, that's, that's kind of solidifies that as, as a, as an, as a, as a unique kind of trans allegory uh, for the movie, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just for, for listeners out there, it, it ends with a, um, uh, a female cover of uh, wake up mm-hmm. um, by rage against the machine, which yeah. is uh you know, what closes out the, the original movie. 
um, uh, but you know, going back to the trans allegory, um, uh, Trinity has this great moment where her husband in the matrix, uh, is pleading with her not to go with Neo. And he says, mm-hmm. uh, he calls out her name, uh, her matrix name, uh, oh, yeah. Tiffany. And she says, you know, I hate that name. Um, my name is Trinity. And it kind of uh, mirrors the moment in the original yeah. Matrix where uh, Agent Smith calls um, Neo Mr. Anderson and he, you know, basically rejects his his mm-hmm. dead name, um, uh, you know, Mr. Anderson and says, my name is Neo. Um, and, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> I, I think that scene is power is a powerful um uh, kind of statement about identity mm-hmm. and, you know, um, you know, claiming your own identity uh, just on its own, but looking at it now after Lana Wachowski has transitioned, mm-hmm. um, I think it's even more powerful. Yeah. Um, um, so uh, I thought those were really effective moments and resurrections nice i agree and i i for <laughs> for whatever reason like i i had that th- i had that thought when i rewatched the matrix because like when when he the the dead name scene basically um like i connected it to obviously dead naming and, and trans uh people and everything and then like i for some reason i didn't even connect that with that scene with the with resurrections in in it because <laughs> i don't know i just it just there was a lot going on but that's really interesting <laughs> yeah um yeah uh, <laughs> uh to kind of bring it back a little bit um how did you feel about the merovingian scene um cuz i thought it was a little bit eh, i i don't know how did you feel about it? Uh, I mean, I wasn't super excited to see that character mm-hmm. um, as I would have been to have seen, I don't know, any other Matrix character, basically. Yeah. Um, he says something. It's a dialogue that I, I haven't been able to just decipher both times. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he say something about franchises? Oh, I vaguely remember something, but I can't, I can't remember the specifics, but probably. Um, He says something about like, he's like angrily rambling about uh, like franchise weaknesses or something. mm -hmm. But yeah, that that moment just didn't didn't work for me. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um the uh, also Jada Pinkett Smith, right? Came back for Niobe. Mm-hmm. Um and that was another yeah. thing that I found interesting is that they reveal that it's actually been like 60 years in real world time. Um and I thought that was that was kind of an interesting reveal, something I wasn't what wasn't ex- anticipating and everything. But how did you feel about Niobe in that kind of kind of exposition dump about what all has been going on in the real world while, you know, the matrix has been matrixing. <laughs> How'd you feel about that? Uh, well, I do like the, the conflict that basically comes out of her focusing more on 
conserving the city of Zy- of Io mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> rather than freeing minds yeah. um, uh, from the Matrix. Um, you know, that was uh, kind of interesting to see a, a character call her out on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea that they have started spending less effort on, on freeing people from the Matrix. Um, I would have liked to have uh, delved deeper into that, maybe explore why she's mm-hmm. shifted her focus. Um, yeah. I don't know. All the stuff in IO felt kind of underdeveloped uh, to me. And yeah. um, I, you know, I think Jada Pinkett Smith did a, did a good job of conveying you know, how Niobe is just kind of tired and, mm-hmm. and bitter at this point. Um, but yeah, that, that wasn't uh, the strongest chapter of the movie for me. Yeah. Same here. And I, I'm someone who always in the trilogy kind of wasn't that taken with the real world stuff anyway. Um, and especially with this recent rewatch of the trilogy, I, I felt like, them showing Zion and everything after talking about it as, you know, the last bastion of humanity and free will and everything to have it be this like militaristic, like tribunal kind of system in, in reloaded and resurrect or in revolutions just felt like, okay, this is, this is just dull. And, and like, it's, it's really not working for me. And then, it it doesn't really do that in resurrections but like you said it's about you know them catching us up on what humanity has been doing outside of the matrix and how they've kind of used used the matrix in their favor to cultivate crops and to and they they're working with the machines in some respects which i did appreciate that on some level the idea of like those the machines helping them and everything because it felt like uh to your to your um to your comparison when talking about the trilogy, um, it felt like a Philip K. Dick kind of thing. And I'm, I'm a Philip K. I'm a Philip K. I'm a Philip K. Dickhead. So, um, I really enjoyed that. Um, you're big on Dick. I'm big on Dick. Yep. (laughs) 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 But it's, but, uh, but yeah, I just kind of wish that there was a little bit more to that. Um, which is kind of a running theme with, with my review of the movie is that, there's some interesting concepts, but I kind of just wish that there was a little bit more throughout it. Um, but they don't really do much to really bring out a lot of the concepts and everything, mostly because it's a story about Neo and Trinity. So, and I can kind of respect that, but I think that there, there's some rich, rich ground that went, uh, remained covered up. (laughs) I, I, I guess, um, um, I, and I wonder if that was a, you know, compromise made because of studio notes. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't know, but it did feel like a lot of this movie was compromised. I, I can't imagine Lana Wachowski actually, you know, skimming over these rich ideas. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that was due to some studio interference. I'm, I'm not sure. That's a Um, good question. Huh. Yeah, but, no, uh, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Um oh, uh, oh yeah. Just one thing, sorry. Oh, I, you're good. I was gonna say 
that's the the great irony of of all the matrix movies is that um uh the real world sucks yeah yeah like like uh you know i mean i i know that the matrix is is fake and it's it's part Mm -hmm. of you know this awful uh system of machines harvesting you know human energy or whatever but like god damn i'd rather live there yeah oh yeah um like, why would I want to live in this gray, like, cold, rusty shithole? That, um, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm in, I'm, <laughs> I'm in Joe Pantaleon, Pantaleano's camp in the first Matrix. Like, why, like, I would live in blissful ignorance if I could of, of, you know, that, um, Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, this is sounds like a bit of a stretch probably, but, um, you know, the idea that our, uh, I think uh, you could say there's an idea that um, our lives outside of social media kind of uh, reflects the real world in the sense oh. that, you know, on, on Facebook, we get to present our, our best selves, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we crop our photos, we, you know, use filters, um, uh, you know, we only post about, uh, the good things that happen to us. Um, uh, you know, you could, so maybe you could say that (laughs) the real world is like what we do when we're, we're not on social media. Yeah. Oh yeah. And like, um, we can release podcasts that are edited to make us sound like we're not idiots um, <laughs> on my part, at least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but no, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. We've assimilated into uh, the social media machine and uh, yeah, that is kind of a bummer. Um, I will say that. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> Um, another part of the movie, and then we can kind of start wrapping up cause I'm, I, I don't know what else, uh, to talk about with the movie, but, um, the change, the change of the agents to bots that swarm around, I felt like in theory, that's an interesting concept because I mean, it's, 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 it's a computer program. Like it makes sense. It tracks, but I just got this overwhelming sense of, tiredness from it because it just felt like any other like zombie movie and like that's such a tired trope like i i it took me out of that final like chase sequence a little bit because it just felt like this is this is world war z basically like i i I, this is not really doing much for me how did you feel about that aspect of it uh it did feel like um kind of a last minute addition mm. i mean it, it doesn't the idea of the swarm doesn't really doesn't really come up until the end i mean it's yeah. mentioned beforehand but we mm-hmm. don't really see the swarm until the end yeah on the same hand though i mean the agents have always been shapeshifters yeah um who could turn into random people i think that was more effective in the first movie though mm-hmm. uh because it was actually really scary like you, yeah. you never knew when someone was going to turn from a regular person into an mm-hmm. agent. Like I'm, I'm thinking of like the, the homeless man in the train station. Yeah. Um, turning into agent Smith, like that moment's really scary. And, mm-hmm. um, 
I just uh, the the shape shifting swarm bots just weren't nearly as scary to me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I agree. And my kind of ration rationalization for it is it does seem like an apt update and maybe there is that social commentary to it like is that supposed to be like because like the ideas presented in the matrix in the first one like the agents that are like authority figures that are stopping you from from breaking free of this this prison that they put you in and everything whereas now we have swarms of people that seem like they like they don't change or anything they're just they're just they're infected and they're coming after you for presenting i don't know this might be too too like armchair stupid but um but like they're just changing and they're coming after you when you're doing something that they don't want you to do that the matrix doesn't want you to do so it kind of feels like kind of feels like a um uh like an internet reaction thing <laughs> like uh if oh, you like they're they're like a mob of trolls yeah pretty much yeah like if you huh. yeah i i don't know i think that there there's something there but i don't know if it's really like like a lot of the things in the movie it's not really explored to it to um to a, a a deeper a deep a deep enough extent for me to uh have a cogent thought about it <laughs> No, I mean, I think the idea that the swarm represents kind of like a herd of trolls is really mm. interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I love that. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, so kind of wrapping up, like our final thoughts on the Matrix Resurrections. Um, I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. It's going to be on HBO Max for <laughs> another week now. Um, I don't know. I'll probably, I might revisit it someday, but. I thought it, I, I had a good time with it. I'll say that a, a, a good enough time with it. Kind of wish there was more to it, but um, I'm pretty okay with what we got. Um, how about you? What kind of your final thoughts on the Matrix Resurrections? Um, I'm you know I'm higher on it than you are. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will admit that it doesn't follow through on exploring um, some rich ideas that it presents. Um, but I, I think, you know, fans, especially of the original, um, are likely to have a great time. I yeah. had a great time with it. I don't think I'll revisit it uh, nearly as much as the, the other three. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, for what it is, I, I appreciate it. Nice. And and for what it's worth, I'm super happy that you had a great time with it because I know that you were looking forward oh, thanks, to man. it. Yeah. And I hope that other Matrix fans had had a good time with it as well. Um, but for me, it just it was it was fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's it for our Matrix Resurrections review. Um, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me for it, Sam. Uh, it was a blast to have yeah, you man. on. It was yeah. a blast. Yeah. Um, and once again, where can we find all of your work online and what do you have coming up? If any, well, you have your, the, your screen review. Um, yeah. Uh, go ahead and, and plug your, plug your shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um I, I should have the screen review up today. Um, nice. I think, uh, Nick still needs to give it a look and mm -hmm. edit. Um, but hopefully that'll be up today. Uh, nice. And then um, in the future, I'm th thinking about starting a an essay series called 
1995. Yes. Um, <laughs> I uh, I basically love anything, and I'm trying to focus on like lesser appreciated 90s movies mm-hmm. that have an especially 90s quality. Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, be on the lookout for that. I I'm very much uh, interested in that. I just recently watched The Fugitive for the first time and oh, had just classic. so much fun with that. It's it's such a blast and it's very much of that era. So um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think I think that essay series will give me a, a really good appreciation for that era because like that that's something that's so tied to my own nostalgia is like. I remember seeing trailers for movies and like my parents would rent movies and everything that were like that through like the net with Sandra Bullock is, is a good example of a movie. That's like, I, I I'm very curious what it's like to watch it now. Um, but, um, but yeah, but like that kind of nineties computers. Yes. Oh yeah. Like floppy disks <laughs> destroying the world basically. <laughs> so <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's awesome. So I'm excited. And I'll put a link to all your stuff in the show notes as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, do you have any parting thoughts before we sign out? Uh, no, I would just, I would say, uh, you know, uh, Scream is um, making me hopeful that uh, January and February maybe won't be terrible. Yes. Like they usually are for movies. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh yeah, just uh, thanks again for having me on. I oh, really appreciate it. And uh, it was a blast. Yeah, thank you. Nice. Absolutely. And we will have you back at some point for sure because it's a blast talking to you. And yeah. Um, also, parting thought. Did you see the trailer for Marry Me with J-Lo and Owen Wilson? Uh, <sighs> yes, I did. <laughs> Is it weird that I just I'm looking forward to that? <laughs> <laughs> oh so am i i'll totally see it nice nice all <laughs> right so you have we have we have sam committed to come back to review marry me <laughs> oh i would love to review that nice Please nice have me on to review that oh i definitely will then i definitely will um or should i say i do think that's gonna happen <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> oh god nice <laughs> all right well that'll do it for this uh, this episode or this section of the episode because I'm still going to have a bunch of stuff at the end. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed our review of The Matrix Resurrections and uh, check out all of Sam's stuff online and Sam Movie Man on Letterboxd, right? Yep, that's yep. right. All right, awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for listening and uh, enjoy this next section of the podcast and for you early access listeners on Patreon. Hope you guys enjoyed uh, this review as well. So, yeah. All right. I'll be back with more stuff here soon. All right. And I am back. Thank you once again to Sam Watermeyer for joining me for a review of The Matrix Resurrections. Let me know what you guys thought of that review and of the movie and everything. And definitely check out Sam's writing on Midwest Film Journal and follow him on Letterboxd at Sam Movie Man on Letterboxd. Um, really a treat to have him on and can't wait to have him back on the podcast. So, as I said, I am going to be closing out this episode with pretty, it's going to be pretty lengthy, uh, I think. So, if you look at the timestamps, you know. But this is where I'm going to break down the um, podcast and 
website stats for 2021 to finally put the kind of close out 2021 entirely. And I'm also going to share my honorable mentions for the year for 2021, as I mentioned in the uh, year in review episode. So, um, first of all, just want to say thank you guys for supporting us through another year. It's incredibly just humbling and, and it makes me so, so happy that we have people that are listening to us and, uh, that are, you know, um, willing to, to listen to us and everything. I just got a, uh, message from a coworker who said that a, another coworker, um, started listening to the podcast. So, um, he actually doesn't work for, for the company anymore, but anyway, if you're listening, thanks for checking us out and everything. But, uh, but yeah, so here we go. So, this is exciting because this is where I geek out over the data and everything over the la- over the last year. It's kind of where I kind of um I stroke my ego a little bit um, by talking about how much stuff that we've done across all of the obsessive viewer brand um over the year and it's kind of where I kind of like to hold myself accountable and uh just really uh geek out over it. And unfortunately, um Last year, my laptop that I had all of the information on, everything, it died. It died entirely. I talked about it on Patreon. Very harrowing experience for me. Um, But fortunately, thanks to Patreon supporter Matt and Draco, um, I was able to procure a new laptop and get to a point where I can ensure the continuity of podcasts. So um, I don't have like the hard numbers in terms of like, the time frame of of the amount of time that we released on Patreon, but uh, everything else I have pretty good, pretty solid data on. So here's what I'm going to do for the rest of this episode. I'm going to talk about the podcast stats for 2021, and then the film writing stats that I've had over 20 that I had over 2021, and then I'm going to talk about the recurring co-hosts top tens. And then I'm going to close it out with a breakdown of the Patreon stats for the year and then my honorable mentions for 2021. So those are where those are the sections of the remainder of this episode. (laughs) So um, check the show notes if you want to skip around and go to the timestamps and everything. So without further ado, let's get started on the podcast stats for 2021. Um, 2021 was by far a very big year and I can't credit I, I can't I can't say that like uh, the reason for that I should say is um I upgraded all of the podcast equipment. We got a new mixer, the Rodecaster Pro, and I got some new microphones, boom arms, and even um even a more mobile setup as well. I got some more microphones for handheld mobile stuff and then uh for also for like film festivals and everything. So I spent quite a bit of time and money in in research building up the equipment that we have. And as a result of that, we I was able to produce tons of content this year. Um with so much it's it's such an easier way to do it than what I was doing previous to that. For 8 years I was recording the 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 podcast, editing every minute of them and just basically basically doing the rule of thumb is that when I recorded an episode I would spend about 1.5 minutes 
for every minute of recorded audio editing and putting it all together. With the new equipment, that has drastically cut down entirely. I barely have to edit anything, uh, which people may re- <laughs> may notice, but I feel like it is a good product that I'm putting out into the world and everything. So as a result of that, the three podcasts, Obsessive Viewer, Anthology, my solo podcast, and Tower Junkies, our uh, uh, Stephen King podcast, those we we had big years for each of them so obsessive viewer the show that you're listening to now we released a total of 29 episodes in 2021 that accounts for uh two days five hours 54 minutes and 58 seconds so just shy of 54 hours worth of audio that was released in 2021 under the obsessive viewer podcast and i'm thrilled with that i'm super happy very excited about that and i'm excited to do more stuff in 2022 as well. Anthology, my solo podcast is kind of a, it's kind of a not tricky one, but it's kind of a, that's a show that I frequently go on hiatus with just because it's a lot of work to do on my end. Um, But with the new equipment, I was able to put a lot of effort into it in 2021 as well, but it is on hiatus now. I'm going to bring it back soon. Um, But for 2021, I released a total of 23 episodes of Anthology that accounted for one day, four hours, 28 minutes, and 45 seconds of audio, or in other words, 28 and a half hours. Super thrilled with that as well. Super happy. Can't, could not be happier with that. Um, And then finally, Tower Junkies, we released also 23 episodes in 2021 that accounted for one day, 10 hours, 57 minutes, and 18 seconds of audio, which is just shy of 35 hours. And so that brings the total amount of podcasts, podcast episodes, Across all three of the Obsessive Viewer podcasts, so Obsessive Viewer, Anthology, and Tower Junkies, cumulatively, all told, in 2021, we released a total of 75 podcast episodes, which is insane to me. I'm so happy with that. And that was a total runtime of four days, 21 hours, 21 minutes, and two seconds. Or, in other words... Uh, Obsessive Viewer Podcasts released 117 and a half hours worth of audio in 2021, (laughs) and that is just insane to me, and um, I'm just super thrilled with that. As far as uh, film writing goes, I wrote wrote a fair amount of reviews in 2021, probably not as much as I would have liked to. I'm hoping to really get, get the ball rolling a bit in 2022 with that, but um, my archive for all of my 2021 stuff can be found at obsessiveviewer.com slash Matt Hurt 2021, by the way. But in 2021, new release movie reviews, written reviews, I wrote a total of 14. So I'm pretty happy with that. And then for non-new release reviews, I wrote two reviews, one for Freaky from 2020 and one for Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster, part of the Godzilla Showa era collection box set uh, series that I'm doing um, (laughs) at my own pace, obviously. And I had one piece of guest writing. I wrote a review of the Stand Definitive 2 Series Collection Blu-ray. I wrote that for Midwest Film Journal. Um, so check that out. That was published on December 29th. So just, just under the wire. So that was a total of, um, all told the amount of film writing that I posted on the internet in 2021 amounted to 14, 15, 16, 17 pieces of writing in 2021, which is okay. I, 
I want it to be a bigger number. I want to, I want there to be more. So hopefully I can improve that in 2022. But when you consider that, I mean, that's 17 pieces of writing and also 75 episodes of podcasts. I think I'm in the clear there. I think that that's okay. But I'm pretty happy with that and everything. And I think I, I think I did some pretty, pretty decent writing in 2021 as well. Um, yeah. So then, uh, those are the stats. Very happy with this. And once again, thank you guys so much for supporting us and for listening to us, reading us, doing whatever you do. I really appreciate, um, everything you guys do for us. So now, uh, I'm going to talk about the recurring co-hosts top tens of the year, starting with Ben Sears, um, who recently launched his own website, themoviestate.com, which you can also find that on Twitter at themoviestate. And I'm going to count down his top 10, starting with 10. Number 10 is Pig. Number nine is Nine Days. Number eight is The Card Counter. Number seven is Mass. Number six is The Tragedy of Macbeth. Number five is The Power of the Dog. Number four is Licorice Pizza. Number three is The Green Knight. Number two is Petite Maman. And number one is The Souvenir Part 2. And I'll put a link to his post on themoviestate.com that details all of his top ten and everything as well. But go check out Ben's site, themoviestate.com, and follow him on Twitter at themoviestate. Um, and I don't have the stats for how many episodes he was on this year, but he was on quite a few episodes of Obsessive Viewer this year, and I'm super happy with that and everything. And we're going to be resuming the Ebert's Great Movies list, uh, series this month. And, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to dig into that as well. Dig back into that as well, I should say. Um, next up is Robert Feckus, who can be found on Instagram at nerdster330. Um, his top 10, uh, starting with 10, is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, uh, The Suicide Squad at number 9, number 8, Belfast, number 7, No Time to Die, number 6, The Green Knight, number 5, Justice League, The Snyder Cut, uh, number 4, Ghostbusters Afterlife, Number three, The Last Duel. Number two, Spider-Man No Way Home. And number one was Dune. Um, and he was on a couple of episodes this year. Um, uh, yeah, we talked about, or maybe just one episode. Because we were supposed to do The Suicide Squad, but I had a panic attack. But um, he was definitely on for Spider-Man No Way Home. And I was super happy with that uh, review as well. So we'll have him back on, obviously, in 2022. And now to round out the recurring co-host is Kirsten, who uh, was not on the podcast this year. She did make an appearance on our eighth grade commentary track on Patreon. But uh, yeah, she didn't really do much uh, in terms of podcasting this year or movie watching for that matter. You can follow her on Twitter, by the way, at burger underscore lurker. But she did not have a top 10. And in fact, she said that the only really the only movie, the new movie, the only new movie she saw this year was Army of the Dead. So that's her top 10, I guess. Um, so uh, maybe we'll have her back on this year. Who Who's to say? I don't know. Uh, I yeah, we'll see. Um, but I guess that's her movie of the year. Army of the Dead. <laughs> Um, all right. And those are the recurring co-hosts, their top tens and, uh, or lack thereof. Um, and so now on this section of this episode, I'm going to talk about Patreon stats. And so Patreon, for those who don't know, is a premium kind of thing where basically I post audio content 
that is behind a paywall. And I am very, I'm, I'm, I take it very seriously. <laughs> and I talk about Patreon a lot. And just, just for your guys' sake, if you don't understand what Patreon is or don't know what it is, basically it's a paywall for audio content, video content, written content. It's, it's a, it's, it's a kind of catch all for that. I use it for audio content. Basically, what you do is go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and you uh and you sign up for one of the one of the Patreon tiers. We have four different tiers. We have a one dollar tier, which is one dollar per month, it gets you access to B-roll episodes that we record throughout the year and release onto the Patreon feed at the $1 level. It's kind of the entry point for Patreon. It's where, uh, it's more, it's probably more of a, Hey, thank you for like, uh, supporting us and everything kind of thing. But also you get some, some fun content behind the paywall. Like this year we did an episode, uh, Mike and I did talking about our top five favorite songs that lasted, it ended up being an hour and a half thing. And that's on the $1 tier. Um, so you get that, uh, at the $1 tier. Um, and in 2021, we released 51 B-roll episodes on the $1 tier. So basically if you go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, sign up for the $1 Patreon tier, you get instant access to, um, all that is on the $1 tier, which includes 51 episodes under, uh, in 2021. And before that, I mean, we've been doing it since 2018. I think there's something like 156 total B-roll episodes. And basically when you sign up on Patreon, it immediately, it immediately charges you the $1 and then you have instant access. You get your own little RSS link. So you'll copy that, paste it into your in, into whatever podcatcher you use. I use Pocket Cast. You can just copy and paste the URL and then it automatically subscribes you to it and it will give you access to whatever you have access to on that feed. So at the $1 level, you get access to all of those B-roll episodes. Now, if you were to do the $2 level, you get access to the B-roll episodes at $1 plus TV and book reactions that I do on the $2 level. And then if you do $5, you get access to everything plus commentary tracks and movie reviews at the $5 level. So you get, you know, $5, the $5 level gets you that plus the TV and book reviews plus the B-roll episodes. And then if you pledge $10 per month, you get access to all of that plus early access to content. So like right now, um, the Matrix Resurrections review was posted on the $10 Patreon level a couple of days ago, uh, pretty much as soon as, um, as soon as Sam and I finished recording it, I uploaded it to Patreon at the $10 level for early access. And right now, if you're listening to this, when this comes out on the main feed, they, the $10 patrons are already have access to Mike and my's two, two plus hour scream review, uh, for scream 22. That's all that that's that's going to come out on probably Wednesday of this week. So there's a lot of content there and basically all the money that you spend on us on Patreon goes to keep the fees to to help pay the fees to keep the podcast running and it just gets you a ton of content. So if you like what we do and you like what you hear and everything, consider checking out Patreon at any of the levels. Any bit helps. It's just uh, I don't know. I just really like the idea of people listening to the content that we, that we do. And part of it, part of it kills me a little bit that I have a paywall, but I, I do really make an effort to make it as, um, as robust and as, uh, as 
filled with content as I possibly can. So anyway, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Like I said, at the $1 level, we released 51 B-roll episodes in 2021. And then for the $2 level in 2021, I released eight eight episodes of book reactions. So I did an immediate reaction of Later by Stephen King. And then I did, uh, let's see, a five-episode series on Billy Summers going going uh, in 100-page increments, uh, just my thoughts as I was reading it. And then I did a book reaction episode for My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. And then I have a free story reaction post on there for Red Screen by Stephen King, which was on sale uh, earlier in 20, uh, 2021. So I have eight book reactions right now. This month, I'm doing uh, Night Shift um, by Stephen King, and I'm hoping to do more short story collections from, from Stephen King on the $2 level. So that's going to be going throughout the year. Um, but like I said, you pay $2, you get instant access to everything there. Um, on the $2 level, in terms of the TV side of that, which by the way, $2 gets you TV and book reactions. So this is all lumped together in one, one feed. So for the TV reactions, I released a total of 50 TV reaction episodes in 2021 for the $2 level. And that includes a commentary track for the first two episodes of Community, a complete series review of Superstore, a season one review of Rutherford Falls, seasons one and two reviews of Mythic Quest. I reviewed every episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, of Lisey's Story, of Loki, and uh, Midnight Mass. And I'm also working on um, reviews of Foundation, Chapel Wait, and Storm of the Century. So all of that is on the $2 level, including that and the book reactions and the B-roll episodes for the $1 level as well. Uh, that all accounts for 50, 50 TV reviews, 8 book reviews, so 58 stuff on 58 pieces of content on the $2 level for Patreon. And that also is... Uh, and in addition to the 51 episodes at the $1 level. Now, if you were to pledge $5 per, per month, that gets you access to everything that I've said, plus commentary tracks and movie reviews um, at the $5 level. And I'm very excited about the stuff that we did on the $5 level because I... First of all, we did an immediate reaction recording with Tiny and I in the parking lot uh, talking about Dune. Um, so that was one immediate reaction. And then we released 19 commentary tracks. I recorded commentary tracks for Superbad, Pet Cemetery 2019, Shaun of the Dead, Throne of Blood, It Chapter 2, Ex Machina, The Shining, Dr. Sleep, 8th Grade, 7, In the Tall Grass, Sunshine, Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween H2O, Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills 2021, <laughs> Dune 2021 and The Matrix. All of that was released in 2021. Those full length commentary tracks um, at the $5 level. And then I also started doing late in the year, I did what I call Patreon Potpourri, which was just basically me talking about some movies that I'd watched recently, mostly usually like four movies at a time. It really helped me to categorize the stuff that I did in uh, at the end of the year with watching screeners and watching a bunch of like last minute 
2021 movies to cram before the for the IFGA meeting. So it helped center that. So I have eight Patreon potpourri sections or Patreon potpourri episodes on the $5 level. So all of that makes uh, for the $5 level received 28 pieces of content on Patreon in 2021. And that's in that is also in addition to a bunch of stuff that we've done over the last couple of years. Like the running total of commentary tracks alone on the $5 level is 25 right now. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing a lot more in 2022 as well and more of the Patreon potpourri stuff in 2022. So all told in terms of Patreon and the podcasts and everything, it was a really good year for Obsessive Viewer in 2021. Um, just to run down again, at the $1 level, we had on Patreon 51 B-roll episodes. On the $2 level, we had 58 pieces of content, including TV and book reviews. And on the $5 level, we had a total of 28 pieces of content. Super proud of all that. And just once again, if you're if you want more obsessive viewer content, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer because I work really hard to put more content out there um and everything. And I'm just so thrilled that we have anyone that's willing to pay money <laughs> to to listen to us. But um I think now we're at a point where um when I get like I like I'm doing commentary tracks and the Patreon potpourri. All of that stuff is a lot of fun, and I just, I just, I, I'm looking forward to putting more stuff on Patreon this year. But of course, everything that we do on the main feeds of the podcast will always, always be free. Um, we are on episode 363 of the Obsessive Viewer, and every single episode of the Obsessive Viewer, even the terrible first episodes where I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> All of those episodes will always, always be free on the internet, no matter what. So if you can't pay or if you don't want to pay or if you don't have the means to to uh, support us financially, just downloading and listening to any episode of the podcast is is an amazing amount of support in its own right. So, um, so yeah. So if you have the means, please <laughs> check out the, check out the paywall on patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. But if not, don't worry, we love you no matter what. So that's what we did this year in 2021. And I can't wait for 2022. I have a lot of stuff kind of cooking, um, that I want to do in 2022. That's going to include a lot of hopefully guest writing pieces. I'm hoping to do some stuff on Ben's site, themoviestate.com. And I'm also, I've already started doing stuff for uh, Midwest Film Journal. So I'm excited to see how much I can branch out in 2022 with my writing in particular. And we have a lot of fun stuff for the podcast planned out and everything. So once again, just thank you guys so much for supporting us and for listening to us and everything. It it really means a lot, and I I can't thank you enough and everything. And once again, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. So now I'm gonna close out this recording with a very lengthy uh uh um breakdown of honorable mentions. And this is gonna be kind of unique because I have my honorable mentions for 2021, and I'm just going to go ahead and list them now, but I have my honorable mentions for 2021 are The Last Duel, West Side Story, The Harder They Fall, and Luca. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to leave this episode with... Um, clips from those Patreon potpourri segments that I recorded throughout the year. So I'm going to like, 
basically throughout the year, I released eight Patreon potpourri episodes. And in those episodes, and in four of those episodes, I reviewed The Last Duel, West Side Story, The Harder They Fall, and Luca in segments. So what I've done is I've cut them together to be one big um, extended potpourri thing that's all on Patreon. So what you're going to hear now are my thoughts for each of my four um, honorable mentions for 2021. This is a peek behind the paywall. This is Patreon exclusive content. So if you're on the fence about supporting us on Patreon, or you're curious about what it is without wanting to spend money, the next 45 to 50 minutes of this recording are all on Patreon. So uh, let that be kind of like, uh, I don't know, um, a, uh, a trial run or something if you want to check out Patreon for more stuff. But basically, I'm going to leave you with my uh, Patreon potpourri segments for The Last Duel, West Side Story, The Harder They Fall, and Luca, my four honorable mentions for 2021. And uh, and yeah, once again, thank you guys so much for listening and for supporting us and everything. And we will be back in a few days with Mike and Mai's review of Scream 22. Very proud of that episode. Very excited for you guys to hear it. So um, without further ado, I'm going to sign off. Thank you guys so much for listening and enjoy this extended uh, this extended clip from our Patreon, uh, from my Patreon potpourri segments um, on Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. So thank you guys and enjoy. Anyway, so last night I went to the movie theater. And I saw the movie The Last Duel, um, starring Ben uh, uh, Matt Damon. Um, also, Ben Affleck, Affleck was in it. Uh, they also co-wrote it together with someone else. And then Adam Driver is also in it. And I can't, for the life of me, remember who the female lead was who played Marguerite. But this is a very interesting movie. It is Ridley Scott. Um, set in the 1300s, late 1300s. Um, I'll actually pull it up here and, uh, read the plot summary. So it is based on true events. I don't know how truthful it is or anything, but, uh, yeah. So here we go. Uh, King Charles VI declares that Knight Jean de, Jean de Carouge, uh, settle his dispute with his squire by challenging him to a duel. And so it comes out on October 15th in a wide release in theater. So I saw a, a press screening for it. Um, it was writ- or directed by Ridley Scott, write- written by Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Nicole. Um, I just had it. Uh, Nicole Holof Center. Um, yeah, and so it's based on true events. Um, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know how truthful it is, but it has uh, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, that she plays uh, Marguerite. Um, and Ben Affleck and Alex Lothar, who were, oh, that's where I know him from. He looked so familiar. He's the kid in, he's in the end of the fucking world, but I didn't, I never watched that. But he was also, where I know him from is that episode of Black Mirror, Shut Up and Dance, uh, from season four, I think. He plays the kid, um, who gets, um, uh, yeah, it was season three, actually. So he plays the kid that, um, uh, watch, like, is, is, um, caught masturbating. Like, he, there's a video of him masturbating, um, that a kind of anonymous group of people force him to do things under threat of, of 
you know, um, spreading it to everyone. So that, oh, that, anyway, in the movie, he looked like just kind of just a, it's that kind of classic medieval, I almost said medieval, um, (laughs) medieval, um, uh, kind of child, child king kind of dynamic, but he's not a focal character in the story. What is interesting about the story is it is this kind of Rashomon-esque narrative in which this central story, it's the story about this dispute between a knight, a squire, and the knight's wife. And what happens is um, basically their dispute um, gets to the point where they have a duel to the death to settle the dispute. So the movie opens with just the beginning of the duel. And it's this very kind of big um, theatrical kind of thing. It's like a joust um, thing. And uh, we don't have any context for it or anything. But the movie is is one of those movies where it is uh, kind of separated into segments or chapters. So each chapter, there's three throughout the movie. It's two and a half hour runtime. There are three chapters. And like the first one is the truth according to Matt Damon's character. And then the second chapter is the truth according to Adam Driver's character. And the third, the third chapter is the truth according to Matt Damon's character's wife. And so that kind of Rashomon style thing, it, it covers the same amount of time each, you know, each chapter, but it is, it is this interesting kind of play of different perspectives and different, um, interactions. And you see, like, what I find really compelling about it and really interesting about it is the way that it is kind of showing these different, the way that it shows these, these different perspectives and it, uh, the kind of subtleties that the movie in, implements in those segments are really interesting. Like there are certain, um, there are certain, uh, interactions that are repeated throughout, you know, all of the, I just spelled Cleveland, uh, <laughs> Kelevand. Um, <laughs> so maybe this isn't a good idea to, to record while I'm working, but anyway, um, so there is a, uh, so, so there are scenes that are in each segment, but are obviously, it's not necessarily like different perspectives. Like we don't, it's not like we're seeing like, oh, these two characters are talking and we, we get the third character in the background. And then when we get to that segment in that character's chapter, it's from their focal point. So, so there were in the background or anything. It's not like that necessarily. It's subtle things like, the way that the characters speak to one another and the way that, uh, certain, certain things are emphasized in certain chapters that are not em- emphasized or not even shown in other chapters that I find really interesting and compelling sp- simply because, um, it shows the perspective, um, the different perspectives among these three, these three people. And you get this sense that each one has a different, obviously has a different um uh has a different read of what's happened and what is happening and everything and i just found that to be really interesting and of course since it's set in the 1300s and also because time hasn't changed that much there is a lot of um you know misogyny and uh like they treat women as property and everything like one of the central disputes is that um is that adam driver uh, kind of is, is gifted land that was promised to Matt Damon in, uh, as his, as part of his wife's dowry. 
And that causes some consternation, not because it's, you know, her, her land or anything or land that she had. It's just because, you know, uh, Matt Damon wants his land and the kind of sense of in, not necessarily entitlement, but the sense of disregard for her, like for her is evident, is made very evident by the time we get to her uh, section of the story. So I just found that to be really compelling and interesting. Another really interesting thing about the way that this story takes place across these different timelines, or not different timelines, but different perspectives, different chapters, is that each character kind of has this um, this kind of central idea. So what happens is that that first the first chapter is all about Matt Damon's character. He is this knight who is uh, fighting for you know fighting for the king. Um, and he like that that arc in his chapter it goes basically each chapter goes from the beginning of the story to the beginning of the duel um and then it reverts back to you know the second the next chapter with the other character's perspective of that same time frame so with Matt Damon's character's segment we see him as this warrior and we see him as this just this in this uh incredible um sergeant on the battlefield and everything like he is he is this uh there's a lot of bravado and um there's a lot of uh oh what's the word i'm looking for there's a lot of uh bravado and a lot of uh vanity and a lot of pride uh, about it and everything and that is really interesting because it is setting it up as uh it's almost like i don't know it's kind of like it's um it's it's kind of like it's uh creating this uh kind of over over um overdone kind of um i don't know this ego thing for him and then with Adam Driver we have this kind of Lothario squire uh person who sees um Matt Damon's character's wife um, and sees his interactions with her as forming a romantic connection. And that is really interesting. It's so interesting the way that it plays out because when we have Matt Damon's perspective first, we learn what happens, obviously, the way that it's introduced. The, the, what leads up to the duel is a, is an act, um, is, is an act that is presented, um, with a certain, with a certain, um, knowledge or, or there's, there's an act that is referenced to Matt Damon that bolsters him into, uh, into setting up the duel and everything and, and leveling charges against Adam driver. And so in that segment, we see that we see like Matt Damon being very, uh, kind of almost being set up as like protecting his wife's honor or what have you. Um, when, and, and then by the time we get to his wife's arc in her story, um, we get this very different look at, at his reaction to it and everything, as well as her reaction to the act and Adam Driver's reaction to the act. It's really, really interesting the way it plays per, with perspective, uh, perspective and perception of, of others' feelings and, and others' interactions. And it's just, it's a really interesting story. I kind of feel like it is a little bit, I don't know, it kind of feels a little bit cut and dry in a sense. Um, I don't know, maybe it's because we didn't really have, 
just by default, we didn't have as much build up toward the actual duel. And it does tell a vast amount of time. It, it does tell a timeline that runs, I think, uh, over well over a decade, I believe, because I think that it starts at 1387. And I think the earliest that we get in the chapters is like, I don't know, like 1350 or something or no 1360. I don't know, but it, it's a considerable amount of time. And I don't know. And since it's divided into thirds, we kind of we get that that big run of time condensed into a significantly short amount of time for each segment. So we're running through the same amount of time and with with different characters perspectives and everything. But it's also something a little bit lost in the shuffle. It kind of feels like it's it's not really communicating that um, that big a that big a run of time, I guess. So I don't know, but I really liked it. What in terms of the drama and everything, it's, it's really interesting the way it unfolds because I mean, it, it kind of, it kind of challenges you a little bit in terms of, uh, what you believe is true, what you, what you perceive as being the potential for, for truth in it, um, is just really interesting because when we get to the truth, when we get to the actual truth of what happened, it's, uh, it's not presented like a it, it's really not presented like a like a gotcha thing like oh we we this is what really happened and and you know we've been le- it's not like a it's not like a mystery it's not a mystery to solve or anything but it is just playing into the different perspectives of everyone involved in how they rationalize and how they perceive what's happened um, across the board. And that's just really, really interesting to me. And the playing, playing with the kind of, uh, patriarchal kind of, uh, kind of thing, kind of world that they live in and that we still even live in to, to an extent, it's, it's really, really fascinating the way it kind of, um, completes, uh, I don't know, kind of, kind of, kind of completes this interesting, um, overarching kind of thesis statement that it does. So I don't know. I I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Oh, the other big thing is that the action, like all of the action, like set pieces and everything were amazing. I mean, Ridley Scott has not missed a beat from his gladiator days or uh, kingdom of heaven or anything like the actual like sword and sandals kind of stuff like the sword play. There are like gruesome battle scenes, um, and the actual duel itself is really intense and really just it's it's really intense. It's not it doesn't really seem like it's very um, it's not like glorified or anything, which is interesting. So okay, good, nice. I'll get a screener for mass. Fantastic. So I don't know. So I really liked it, and uh, it was a cool cool movie, and I enjoyed it. I don't know where it'll land on my top ten, but I think it does have a chance of breaking that top ten. So, yeah, so that's the last duel. This was a test of the uh, microphone's placement and listen in recording with the uh, air conditioner running. So while I work from uh, next up, I'm going to talk about a new theatrical release that I saw at a screening, which I will have an episode about with uh, with with some people also at some point. But it is. Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story, and I'm going to play a clip from the trailer right now. I never seen you before. I'm a Puerto Rican. Is that okay? 
Do you want to start World War III? You know, I wake up to everything I know either getting sold or wrecked or being taken over by people that I don't like. You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm gonna think for myself. Tony, we need you if we're going to war. Who are you? Friend or foe? West Side Story was originally supposed to be released in 2020, but because of COVID, it got pushed to 2021. Directed by Steven Spielberg, it's a remake of the 1961 movie, I think. Um, but uh, the plot summary is two youngsters from rival New York City gangs fall in love, but tensions between their respective friends build toward tragedy. Um, if you don't know West Side Story, it's basically Romeo and Juliet. Um uh, and yeah, it, it is, it's really, it's really, really good. Um, this is a great, great movie. I rated it four stars out of five on Letterboxd and I'll go ahead and read my Letterboxd review for you here. Beautiful and vibrant cinematography that feels like an ode to Hollywood's golden age. The performances are great across the board and the camera work and choreography are top notch. Ansel Elgort and newcomer Rachel Ziegler are great as Tony and Maria, but it's our Ariana DeBose's performance as Anita that really cuts to the emotional core of the movie. And like I said, I rated it four stars out of five. And I also want to mention that the actor Mike Feist, Feist, he plays Riff in the movie and holy crap, he is he amazing like him and him and um ariana debose are are scene stealers all the way like i said her her performance as uh as um oh god as anita is really really pivotal to the emotional core of the story because there there are elements of the story where the the tragedy comes to play out and she is kind of at the at the center of that in, in a in a pretty pretty big way and it really helps to bring this level of character to the to the struggle between the sharks and the jets and it's really well done it's incredibly well done but i do want to mention that this is just stunningly gorgeous it is one of the most like one of the best looking films of the year that i've seen and I mean, Spielberg, it's, it's amazing to me because Spielberg has been working for decades. His name is synonymous with film. He's, you know, obviously he's Spielberg. And he, this is his first time ever doing a musical, which is really interesting to me, especially him choosing to do a remake of West Side Story, which is such an iconic movie. So it's just, it's interesting the, the kind of the energy of, uh, or the, um, I, I, not ballsiness of Spielberg because Spielberg has enough credit to do that, but just the idea of S Steven Spielberg doing West Side Story as his first musical, um, and also it being a remake of you know an iconic film. It's just in stage play. It's it's really really fascinating to me, and the way that he creates this, like I said in the letterbox review, this vibrancy, like the the colors of of um of New York in in this movie are it's lit and painted and and it looks like it is just such a beautiful rendition of like a stage production it, it really has that feel to it but it's in you know three dimensions or it's in it's in like uh it's in a set or it's it's in film 
And like I said, it, it kind of really feels like an ode to Hollywood's golden age. Like there are scenes where Tony and Maria are speaking and like the light is coming in through, through like the, um, I think they're in like a church and it's coming in through the stained glass, I think. And the way that it lights their faces, it just feels like that kind of that very, very distinctive, like 60s technicolor type of lighting in a film. And it just looks just jaw dropping. It is absolutely beautiful. And of course, the music is great because I mean, it's West Side Story. The music is amazing. But the way that the the way that the actors all kind of handle their cues and everything is just really really solid and and um really amazing the way it's played out like like i said the choreography is absolutely astounding and not only is the the choreography great but the way that the way that spielberg moves the camera through through these sequences is like jaw dropping like it really puts you in this position or puts you in this world in such a such a such a deep and um really really elegant way because it is so <laughs> it's it's so great and this is going to sound so hokey i'm so sorry but like the camera itself is like its own character but no the way it's just gliding through these elaborate um these very elaborate big set pieces of dancing and singing and uh and fighting and everything is just so elegant and beautiful but it is so like aware of where it is, if that makes any sense. Like you're aware of you, that you're on this ride with the camera as it's going through, like going through, like, uh, like, uh, going through the dance, not dance hall, but the like gymnasium where they're having a dance. And it's amazing because, you know, the Puerto Ricans are on one side and the Americans are on the other side. And it's just like, it's just, it is so beautiful the way that the camera just glides through it. And, yeah, and as much as I I do like Ansel Elgort and Rachel Ziegler. Rachel Ziegler, this is her first movie and apparently she did like um she she did stage productions of of West Side Story in her high school and then uh I, at some point she was discovered and cast in this, but um she's she's fantastic as Maria and Ansel Elgort does a really good job as Tony, but like I said, those supporting actors are absolutely astounding. And it's interesting. Like there like there are certain actors like um Brian Darcy James, who uh you may know from Spotlight or um Thirteen Reasons Why, but he plays um oh god, what is the cop's name? Oh god, um Krupke. Krupke? I think that's it. Uh yeah. But he and he he does a fine job, but also um Corey Stahl plays a lieutenant, I think, and he is like he's he's weirdly unrecognizable to an extent. Like he does this affectation on his voice that's really good. Um, but also Rita Moreno from you know the original movie plays um, a character in it. I wish that Letterbox had the character names. Um, she said she plays Valentina, I think, um, and she does a great job. It's very much like a uh, kind of a legacy role, I guess. But she does a great job as well. I think that they're. Uh, was a scene that was kind in a musical number that was kind of given to that character for this movie specifically because it's Rita Marino and and I mean it's great it's it's really good um some of the action or the or the plot elements of it doesn't doesn't really um I wouldn't wouldn't say didn't really sit well with me but like there's this there's this element to it where there's it's hard to kind of sympathize with Tony in particular because there's something that happens that 
it's it's painted in a way that he is he's very much complicit in it and it's just kind of weird how it's something that uh that is played up like like this is a this is the co-lead in a star-crossed lovers thing and it's like okay he does something that is that is horrific and it's it's something that's unforgivable and the movie kind of breezes past that a little bit but but that's fine it, for the most part it's okay um but it did leave a little bit to be desired but other than that there's not really much that i can say in terms of criticism for this movie um it's just it's beautiful it is absolutely beautiful and i can't get i can't I can't emphasize enough just how stunningly gorgeous it is and how well choreographed it is. And, um, and yeah, and also like Mike faced as riff, I gotta say it was just absolutely fantastic. Um, he, like the whole movie, I was thinking like, man, he, like he is, he's, he looks and, uh, speaks a lot like John Mulaney. <laughs> And I can't, I kind of couldn't really get that out of my head, um, or anything. And like, that's not, that's not constructive or anything, but I just, I, it just got in my head like, uh, for, for a bit, but, uh, but he does such a phenomenal job. I, I actually think he might be the best actor in this movie. Um, he's, he's fantastic. So overall West Side Story was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I don't really know what else I can say about it, but the musical numbers. So, okay, I'll say this. So I haven't seen the original West Side Story in many, many years and, um, watching it in the theater, I was reminded of like all the great music from it, like all the great musical numbers in it. I, I was just reminded of them <laughs> uh, as they came up. I'm like, oh, that's from West Side Story. Okay, yeah. Um, and it's it's fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. I don't know if Spielberg has another musical in him or anything, but um, it was really good. I, I really, really, really enjoyed this. There's a certain... Um, modern modern aspect to it i don't remember if this was in the original movie at all but there is a character who is um who is transgender in the movie and they there it's it's an interesting focal point of the movie and uh it comes into play in in some unique ways and uh the character is really interesting in 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 and of themselves but it fits really well into the story. And I'm curious to go back to the original and see if that character is involved in the original movie in, in any capacity or in the original thing or if it, or if they, or if they were created for this iteration of it. But I just thought that it was a really interesting element to kind of bring us into, uh, the movie. This, this character is kind of like a, um, like they're, they're kind of watching, the, they're kind of watching, um, both sides in, in a unique way and they play a pivotal part p pivotal part in uh bringing the two uh, gangs uh together um in terms of their rumble and everything and uh and yeah i also said by the way when uh the security guards booted us out for podcasting i was like okay well now uh, i just need to contact the simon security um uh, team and organize a rumble between them and the IFJA. So that's going to come soon. But anyway, um, yeah, West Side Story was amazing. I think that it's coming out this week in theaters. And yeah, I think the, December 10th is when it's coming out. And man, I, I mean, I might, nah, I don't know, I might go see it in the theater again. Um, because it was just, it was so much fun. It was so, it was so much fun and so beautiful. And 
like I said, just that that aura of it, that that kind of ode to old Hollywood is just really great. Like I came kind of came out of the theater thinking like this did better justice to the golden age of Hollywood than what um La La Land tried to do. And I loved La La Land. I like a lot of people didn't like it, but I I really loved it. And I loved it for the fact that it was very much um an ode to old Hollywood and um it kind of had this very hopeful energy to it. But I think this movie just has this visual flair to it that was just absolutely stunning. Um, absolutely stunning. I really loved it. So that was four stars for West Side Story. And I hope you guys see it in theaters and let me know what you think of it because I was just a huge fan of it. I really liked it. So, all right. So next up. So next up, I'm going to be talking about The Harder They Fall, which is currently streaming on Netflix, directed by James Samuel, um, and I'm going to play a clip from the trailer right now. You do know how to make a grand entrance. I know who you are. The angel who hunts down those who trespass against him with no mercy. Admit it. I'm lighting it with the blam blams. <laughs> All right, so The Harder They Fall is currently on Netflix, and the plot summary, courtesy of Letterboxd, is. Gunning for revenge, outlaw Nat Love saddles up with his gang to take down enemy Rufus Buck, a ruthless crime boss who just got sprung from prison. I rated it four stars on Letterboxd, and the uh, cast includes Jonathan Majors, Idris Elba, Regina King, Zazie Beetz, Delroy Lindo, uh, Danielle Deadweiler, Lakeith Stanfield, and RJ Seiler, Kyler? Uh, Seiler, um, Dion Cole, and a bunch of other people. This movie, man, I really, really liked it. It was, it was really impressive to me. It is this Western that is, um, it's a Western mashed, mashed up with like black, uh, black exploitation and with like this really incredible, like, uh, stylized aspect to it. Um, and with, with a really great, like kind of hip hop, um, uh, in, in very energetic, um, uh, uh, score to it. It's, it's just really cool. And some of the action was really cool too. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and read my letterboxed, uh, capsule review. I said, super stylized Western mixed with black exploitation elements. While it follows some big Western tropes a bit too closely at times, the stellar cast and incredibly witty and fun script make up for it. Action and violence are top notch here. So, I am just a huge fan of Jonathan Majors. I, I'm a really big fan of his. I still need to see uh, Lovecraft Country, but um, I, I was delighted when he popped up in, uh, in, in oh, oh my God, in Loki, <laughs> Loki. And I'm just, I'm just ecstatic that he could potentially have a very big role in the MCU. But I mean, he was in uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, 
Uh, I really liked him in that. And he's, he's really fantastic. And his, the, the way that this movie opens is it's, it's a flashback to his parents being murdered by Idris Elba, which by the way, just got to say it, just got to get it out there. Seeing Idris Elba like in like cowboy attire and having two handguns, like two revolvers and shooting people and stuff like that just made me wistful for what the Dark Tower could have been because I I still stay. I still say that he would have that he was he was a good Roland Deshane. I think that he could have been a good good Roland Deshane in a good adaptation. Um despite what asshole racists uh think but he i mean he's he's one of my favorite actors and yeah it's just a shame that he got he got screwed over with the dark tower but anyway this movie is really really fun it has a lot of elements of uh like tarantino-esque stuff um just this very stylized thing, like switching out to, um, like split screen dynamics or, or split screen depictions of like w- with shootings and stuff like that and gunshots. Um, and just having a very slick style and wiping, uh, wipe transitions and stuff. It's, it's really, really fun. It's, it's really fun. And like I said in the letterbox review, it does follow some Western tropes a little bit too closely. Like it is, it is a, it is a, um, it's two gangs kind of going at each other basically for, for personal reasons, but it's also like this kind of posse sort of, um, storyline where, uh, where Jonathan Major's character is, is seeking revenge, um, from, uh, against Idris Elba's character and it's it's fine like that like that aspect's fine like as much as it does follow the the western tropes a little bit it does do it with a slight style to it like there are scenes where like characters like like there's a whole subplot with a character who like says that he's like the fastest gun in the west and everything and then lakeith stanfield's character is like famous for being a quick draw and I've got to say, once again, I have banged the drum so hard for Lakeith Stanfield. Um, like if you listened to my Judas and the Black Messiah segment in a previous Patreon potpourri, you know I'm a huge fan of Lakeith Stanfield. So seeing him in this movie as this just very cool, brash, deadly, quick-draw guy on the quote-unquote bad guys gang um, is just fantastic he is so freaking good he like like i said in the judas and the black messiah review he has just this this like energy to him that he has this depth to all of his performances that i've seen that is just remarkable i i think that he is one of the one of the most talented actors working today and i i'm so excited to kind of follow his career and i really need to go back and check out short term 12 again because when i saw it the first time uh years ago when it came out I, i wasn't too hot on it because i was just kind of bored with it but I mean, just the cast in that is is astounding. Like, go look up Short Term 12 and look at all of the actors in it and just tell me that it's not an incredible cast. And that's, like, where a lot of them got their start. And, like, that was their first role, uh, first roles and everything. So, anyway, I'm going to have to check that out, uh, go back and check that out. But, anyway, the gunplay and the violence in this movie is very slick, very, like I said, stylized. It does have that kind of black exploitation 
uh, feel from like the seventies. And I think that that is such an interesting kind of meld with Westerns and, uh, with the kind of Western style. It's just, it's so cool. It's just so freaking cool. And it does like in that respect, it does feel a little bit like, uh, uh, Django Unchained, um, to an extent it, it does feel like that, but it's also its own thing. I, I can't really quantify exactly how it differentiates itself from from the style of Django, um, but it is it is its own thing. It does have the. I think it's mostly the soundtrack. The soundtrack is so propulsive and and hip hoppy and uh, and and big that I think it does create a kind of different different style or a different tone than what Django had, but. This this movie is just so good, and there are some. As much as I've kind of like said that it does follow Western tropes too much, like when when we get to uh, kind of the final showdown, which by the way the action in that is just absolutely insane. It's so cool. It's just so like I love a good Western shootout. I I absolutely adore a good Western shootout, and then they have like hand to hand fight scenes and stuff that feels like 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 uh like an exploitation kind of thing and it's very cool it's just very cool hyper stylized very neat um and when we get to that finale like there are some there are some like uh the the movie holds back some important 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 plot elements um until the ending and like up until that point i was like okay well they haven't really touched on what this was and like okay we're going to wait 2 hours to find out what exactly this meant um, in, in earlier in the movie, but the payoff is really good. The payoff is very solid. And, um, the movie ends on a way that it, it really does feel like, and I think I read in trivia that it is, um, intended that they, they want to make a sequel like James, uh, James Samuel wants to make a sequel and it leaves it very much open for that. Um, so I hope that he does. I hope that, I hope that this happens because, I was really impressed with this, with this movie. And I've got to say there was a really, really cool, like I, I kind of had to pause the movie and kind of just sit with it a little bit because, um, basically, and I think it's in the trailer, but, um, where, uh, Rufus Buck gets sprung from prison on a train and he, uh, the train is on the side, the, the kind of like train company, um, name on the side is CA Bozeman, which is a, which is a tribute to, uh, to Chadwick Bozeman who died last year. Um, and I just thought that was just really, that was really cool. That was a really cool homage to, to, uh, to Chadwick Bozeman, um, whose death still shocked me so much. Like that's so sad and tragic, but, um, but yeah, and then the other thing about it is that I, I haven't read much up, I haven't read up much on, on this stuff. Um, but apparently like most of the characters or a very large portion of characters in this movie are based on actual historical, like cowboys in, 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 in the old West, like actual like they were actual characters, like they, they were actual people like, uh, Delroy Lindo's, uh, character is a, is a marshal. And he was a very, apparently very famous marshal, uh, U.S. marshal back in the day. Um, and yeah, I think Nat Love was a real, real person and Rufus Buck as well. Um, but yeah, I just, there's such a, there's such a, there's such an intangible, like, 
quality of of uh, style to this movie that I just I just loved. I thought it was great. Another really cool thing about this movie is that there are plenty of little um, kind of kind of like cheeky asides that almost play almost plays up uh, plays it up as a meta kind of thing. Like um, I think I can't remember which actor it was and what the character's name was, but uh, the guy who wants to be like a really uh, he wants to be like the fastest gun in the West. I think that character is played by R. Uh, R. J. Siler, um, Jim Beckworth, or Jim Beckworth. Oh, okay. Wow. Huh. Okay. So, so I ha- I think I've I have lamented in the past that you can't see the um, you can't, you can't see the character names on Letterbox, but if you just hover over it with your mouse, you see that. Anyway, you see the character names. So R. J. Siler plays Jim Beckworth. And I think I think that that's the character that wants to be the fastest the fastest uh, quick draw in the West, and it's kind of playing up like oh he is going to have a duel with um, or a gunfight or or what is it called um, uh, quick draw um, shootout gun 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 words um, with um, with Lakeith Stanfield's character whose character name is Cherokee Bill um, and then there's a moment early in the movie where uh, he talks about it and and it's I, I can't remember exactly what happens but it's something like he is playing it up like he's he's like it's his dramatic like monologue and then um, I think, I think Jonathan Majors as Nat Love, like just kind of completely takes the wind out of his sails or something by just saying something like making an offhanded remark or something, or Delroy Lindo, I think says that, uh, says something to him. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's like, it's just really funny in a way to kind of subvert this Western trope of the, uh, of the, of the kind of quick draw kind of thing, like the, um, the quick and the dead kind of thing. Um, Delroy Lindo, by the way, plays Bass, Bass Reeves and, uh, the, the kind of the U S Marshal that's famous, I guess. Um, and that was a really interesting dynamic as well, because he is a U.S. Marshal that teams up with Nat Love and his gang to take down Rufus Buck. And I thought that that was a really interesting element to the story as well. And I really appreciated it for that. And, uh, yeah, but yeah, overall, I really liked this movie. I'm not sure, you know, it, it has a place on my top 10 right now. But I still have quite a, I still have 21 days. I have three weeks left of the year and I'm going to be watching a lot of movies in those three weeks. So we'll see where the harder, (laughs) we'll see where the harder they fall lands on my, because falling anyway, where it lands on my top 10 list. If it, if it makes, makes the cut, but I really, really liked this movie and I do hope to see more from, uh, from James Samuel, Samuel and more from this franchise. I think that this could be a really cool, uh, really cool, um, franchise if they make more of them and everything. Um, without further ado, let's get into Patreon potpourri. Um, the first one I have up is the new Pixar movie directed by Enrico Casarosa. Uh, <clears throat> the movie is Luca, and I'm going to play a clip from the trailer right now. Scopa. We can go anywhere. Do anything. We just got to stick together. Underdogs have to look out for each other, right? Underdogs! This is gonna be the best summer ever. 
directed by Enrico Casarosa, and uh, it stars the vocal talents of Jacob Tremblay, Jack Dylan Grazer, Emma Berman, uh, Severio Raimondo, uh, Maya Rudolph, Jim Gaffigan, and others. And the plot summary, courtesy of Letterboxd, is two young boys experience an unforgettable Italian summer filled with gelato, uh, pasta, and endless scooter rides, but all the fun is threatened by a deeply held secret. They are sea monsters from another world just below the water's surface. So, I have been, in the past, a very big Pixar fanboy. I I just really adore Pixar movies and the kind of emotional resonance that comes with most, if not all, of the Pixar movies that exist. It's It's just, they're masterful storytellers and not only did they pioneer you know computer generated animation and everything with toy story and toy story 2 and a bug's life um but they have perfected it over the last several decades or a few decades like or a couple decades i don't know how long have they been doing it 94 94 2000 94 2004 to 2014 almost 3 decades um so i just had to do math for that wow uh, so for almost three decades, they have been just masters of this. Um, they've had some, some, you know, less than stellar movies along the way, like Cars 2. Cars 3, I think, was okay. I don't remember it all that well. Uh, Brave, I wasn't too keen on or anything, but um, Onward was also kind of just okay. But it's something that I, I find myself gravitating toward Pixar movies more often than not. And I really loved Soul last year. Um, yeah, I just, I, I've, I think I've just kind of fallen out from, uh, from Pixar as in terms of being a fan, mostly, I don't know if it's because I'm in my thirties now, although not really because the movies, they, like I said, those, um, that emotional resonance still exists in the movies. And I don't know. I just feel like, um, maybe, maybe I need to reconnect with Pixar, um, over the, over the next year. Maybe. Oh, Ooh. Oh, interesting. Maybe I will put a bug in Ben's ear to see if he wants me to do a review series of all the Pixar movies for his site, themoviestate.com. Check out themoviestate.com. Ben, if you're listening, uh, uh, as the kids say, get at me. Um, no, let me know uh, if that's something you'd be interested in. If not, it's not a big deal. Anyway, Luca is the latest Pixar movie, and I will go ahead and read my Letterboxd review. Um, that you can find at letterbox.com slash obsessive viewer. Uh, that's my profile on Letterboxd, which is like a social media site for movie fans and movie diarists. Um, like I track all my movies through Letterboxd and it has been a game changer over the, over the years. I love it dearly. So my Letterboxd review, uh, w- written on December 5th, it was glad I finally got around to this. There's no surprise. The animation is gorgeous, but the Italian setting makes it all the more beautiful the story is incredibly charming and plays up the aspirations of youth to branch out and explore the world beyond what they know this fuels the friendship between luca and alberto wonderfully uh really enjoyed this 
And yeah, I stand by that. I rated it four stars on Letterboxd. It was a very just emotionally pure movie. Um, the relationship or the friendship between Luca and Alberto is just so beautifully rendered, so beautifully realized because it is that that curiosity of youth and the idea of them bonding over their shared interest of like scooters and or Vespas, I should say. Um, and dis and exploring the world. Like there's this hunger for exploration of the world and everything, because this is a completely foreign world to them because they're sea monsters. And the way that it, the way that it works is that they're sea monsters under the sea. And then when they come to land, they just change into humans. And so there is a lot of like deceit or, or deception that they have to engage in with, with uh, the people that they meet on land. But it's really just, it's a, it's a beautifully charming story. And, um, that friendship between Luca and Alberto is just absolutely wonderful. And I think that there is a slight, uh, uh, queer read on it. I don't know if it's supposed to be implied or if this is something that, um, that, is just an interpretation of it, but it's impl I think that there is a read of it that has Luca and Alberto being, um, uh, being potentially a homosexual couple, which is great and everything. Um, but it also, it, it also gives us this kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This, this drama between them because they meet, uh, they meet a friend on land, um, who is, uh, let's see. Uh, I think it's Emma Berman, uh, playing, uh, Julia, um, and that kind of puts a wrench in their friendship and it's just, it is so wonderful. I, I mean, the, just the drama, the way the drama plays out is really wonderfully done because that, that conflict where, um, Alberto is jealous of Julia and Luca becoming closer and everything that is just such a, such a natural response to, to an extent, like he gets very, he feels like he's cast aside and everything. And it's something that is is relatable for people, I'm sure, but it's also something that is really uh, easy to latch onto in the movie. And I just, I really loved that. And the way that the movie ends, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not going to give anything away, but the way that it ends is this just absolutely beautiful representation of their friendship. And it is just, it is absolutely astounding. It, it is beautiful. Um, yeah, I don't really know what else to say about it, but Luca is a four-star movie on Letterboxd from me, and it's the latest Pixar movie. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it it's really great. It was a hell of a lot better than The Mitchells versus The Machines. There, that I can say with absolute certainty. Um, I don't know where I would rank it with uh, the other Pixar movies, um, but... I mean, in terms of animation this year, uh, I haven't seen a lot of animated movies this year, but this one is just absolutely perfect. It is, I would, I would hesitate to say that it's a return to form for Pixar because Soul was absolutely outstanding last year. Um, and that was in itself a little bit of a return to form in the way that it kind of goes back to, uh, like inside out, like the concept, like, uh, complex concepts, uh, rendered, uh, straightforwardly, but, uh, but Luca is kind of in that similar vein of classic Pixar, Pixar energy of being emotionally resonant and character focused and the dramas about the character emotions. And it's just, it is beautiful. And also, holy, holy crap, the, the way that 
the uh, Italian like countryside that they that they reside in, the way that it's just depicted, like the art of it is just jaw droppingly beautiful. Like it is absolutely beautiful. It is something that I don't think we've really seen in Pixar movies or in animated movies per se. Um, but it's something that like, I mean, like I said, Pixar is pretty much top dog when it comes to animated, animated art. Um, for the, to, to an extent. I mean, I, obviously we have like Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli and, you know, I mean, Sony animation has been doing great work too. Like, like they're not necessarily, still the they're not they're they're not there's a lot more competition for pixar i'll say that but when they when you have a pixar movie where they are uh you're expecting them to render something beautifully in in terms of landscape or buildings or just general environments you know that they're going to deliver and the fact that this movie takes place in like the italian countryside or in an, in an italian city it's just absolutely gorgeous to look at. And also, um, it was really funny because I was watching it and then like about halfway through, I literally, because I hadn't eaten dinner yet, and I literally paused the movie and made uh, made pasta because I was hungry and I was like, oh, okay, Italy, yeah, okay, I need to make pasta. So anyway, so th- those are my those are my kind of thoughts on Luca. It's available on Disney Plus right now. Um, the latest Pixar movie. It's it's great. I I think that Soul was a better movie overall uh, from last year, but this is still very close to it in my opinion. It's just a very beautiful story, um, very beautiful uh, friendship and characters. It's it's absolutely fantastic. So yeah. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.